When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Scripture Study. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And before we dive in, we're going to be covering Jeremiah today, the second half, as well as the little book of Lamentations. Uh, amazing material. But before we go there, I've just lately had more and more opportunities to meet many of you at conferences or speaking assignments, even at a, a beautiful baptism just a few days ago, uh, where I got to meet a new, one of the newest members of the church and, and a longtime listener. It's it's such a blessing to meet you, to feel that we're kindred spirits that share a, a deep, deep love of Scripture and a willingness to spend inordinate amount of, of time in it. Uh, it's, I just want you to know that the church is better with you in it, and my life is deeper and richer, having come to know many of you. Uh, I am grateful for the time that you're willing to spend with me, and I'm grateful for the time I'm able to spend with you. And I pray that our time in Scripture is life-changing. More, just, more than just, oh, I get it now, which I hope is happening, especially this year in the Old Testament. But more than I understand Scripture, they're having the effect in my life that they're intended to have. They are drawing me closer to the Lord. I'm beginning to recognize His voice and understand the things that He would have me know and, and do and most importantly become. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, we're going to be covering, like I said, the second half of Jeremiah, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which was in the middle of a very long, drawn-out, devastating Jeremiad. Remember, that was our, our vocabulary word for the week last week. Same for this, a Jeremiad as a word of woe, a warning of the consequences of societal sin. Uh, we'll see that clearly in Lamentation because we get to the point where they didn't listen to Jeremiah. And he is lamenting that fact and, and the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem and of Judah. The people being carried captive back into Babylon. And Jeremiah left behind, not to say, I told you so, but rather, I wish you would have listened. Uh, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. There's that sense that we had last week and that we'll get even more clearly this week. We talked about Jeremiah as a marriage counselor. If you remember Dr. Jeremiah uh, working on, on some, some marital therapy, uh, trying to get oh, the, this back, these two sisters, the backsliding Israel and the adulterous Judah, uh, to reconcile with the husband that has always been forgiving and merciful, willing to allow them to come back home. We talked about the sending forth of, or the promised sending forth of hunters and fishers to gather Israel back, uh, to bring them from the lands of their, of their scattering, and, and that that would be more glorious than even the exodus from Egypt. Uh, there were some powerful things last week, week. I hope you felt a kindling of the fire in the bones. And as we move forward into this second half, oh, Jeremiah is still on fire. And the people are still not being cleansed and purified by that holy flame. 
Uh, and so we're going to see some more lamentation on Jeremiah's part as he continues to cry repentance. In some ways, I, I can just picture the marriage therapist feeling like their words just aren't aren't making a difference because the people aren't the, the either the husband or the wife. In this case, the wife, uh, Israel is not making necessary changes. I actually met a marriage therapist once who came to the Institute to, to talk to the young adults. And funniest thing, they said that he, they, this therapist met with a couple that was really struggling. And uh, at one point in their own frustration, I think the husband said to this therapist, I know, I know, it's all about communication. We just don't communicate well enough and that'll fix everything, won't it? And the therapist was very honest and open with them, almost brutal, and said, actually, that's not the problem. Uh, you actually communicate, you both communicate with each other really well. I, I almost wish that you wouldn't communicate because the real problem is that you're both just jerks, <laughs> to, be, to each other at least. Uh, and that comes across really clearly in your communication. You, you guys just need to change. You need to become better people. Uh, better individuals will make for a better couple. Just stop being so mean. Uh, and I just was kind of blown away by that. Uh, in a way that Jeremiah could say something similar to Judah. Uh, it's, uh, believe me, Jeremiah, or the Lord is communicating with his people. They're just jerks <laughs> in a spiritual sense. They, they're not humble enough to recognize and admit their own sin. And with that pride, forcing out godly sorrow, uh, repentance isn't going to be much of an option for them. And so we'll see that unfold as we move forward. The first few chapters, 30 through 33, are key today. Okay, so where we start, it's often referred to as the book of consolation. Because after a, a, a long-winded Jeremiah from last week, we need some of that. We need comfort. We need promises of restoration. And that's exactly what we'll find here. The way Jeremiah chapter 30 begins... The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying. So, are we here? Are we ready for this? Jeremiah, write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Interesting focus here on, you've got to write this down. I mean, Jeremiah, the day will come that I'm going to turn this captivity and the people will, will return to the lands of their inheritance. That's the day that we live in, right? This latter-day day of, of gathering on both sides of the veil. Uh, President Nelson emphasizes this more than any prophet I can think of in our dispensation, except perhaps Joseph Smith who talked about this frequently as well. But the fact that God wanted to make sure that Jeremiah wrote these things down, and here we are, 2,000 years plus later, studying them, well, this is our instruction manual. This is our chance to learn that we are here to fulfill God's promises. It's also meant to be able to reassure Israel from that time on to this, it's not over. And I've put this down in your little black book. Uh, write it, engrave it upon the fleshy tables of the heart. I haven't forgotten you. You are not cast off forever. Speaking of that phrase, have you, do you remember that appears on the title page of the Book of Mormon? A book written down so that a voice from the dust could whisper forth and say, it's not too late for you. 
Uh, that is amazing to me, that the Lamanites in their scattered condition, this book is meant to remind you of who you are, whose you are, that promises have been made to you and to your posterity, and that God will not forget or forsaken you. That this is an incredible, we have the book. This is what we're studying today. And, and to me, it's an amazing blessing to have this in print, that God will keep his promises. In verse 5, For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask ye now, and see, whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. That's a fascinating passage. Notice what he walks you through. I see trembling. I see fear. But what else do I see? I see something that no one's ever seen before. When he says, I see, go see whether a man doth travail with child. It's this fascinating rhetorical question. Do men get pregnant? Do men give birth? There's an old joke that if that were the case, there would definitely be no overpopulation problem. Most families would only have one child. Uh, because most men would, wouldn't go through it a second time. It's like, whoa, that's what it costs? That's the price you pay personally, physically, to bring life into the world? That's the amazing thing about this, this miraculous selective amnesia that very shortly after childbirth, a mother seems not to, for, not to remember just how painful that it was. And it's, hey, when are we having another one? That's, that's incredible to me. Uh, men, not so much. And so what Jeremiah is getting at here is men don't give birth. And yet, it sure looks like I see a lot of men wandering around Jerusalem in need of an epidural. That they're looking around crying out in pain. The way he says it, you know, that they are, they're holding their, their, their hands are on their loins as a woman in travail. Their faces are all pale. The blood has drained where it's like, let's do some Lamaze breathing, shall we? Because... The challenges are on their way. Babylon is bearing down on us, and we're the ones that are suffering. Oh, it's so interesting to me to see what Jeremiah is describing here. Because of the last promise, yes, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, but we'll be saved if we'll turn to the Lord. He's the epidural. Okay? Repentance is the epidural. Uh, turning to the Lord in our affliction should bring the blood back into our face. He's trying to breathe with us and breathe into us that breath of reassuring life. If we'll simply trust in him. It's been a while now since I've said to anyone, take it like a man, because I've changed my language. And knowing what mothers go through in labor, I now usually say, take it like a mom. Come on, we gotta take it like a mom. Moms would be able to handle this. And so you men of Judah, Take it like a mom uh, and push through this difficulty and trial. More importantly, turn to the Lord and, and there won't be the suffering that you're expecting. In verse 8, For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck. Remember last week, this yoke that Jeremiah had been wearing, that a false prophet came and took off him and, and shattered at his feet? Oh no, it's not going to be taken off by us. But the Lord can break this Babylonian yoke if we'll simply turn to him. He goes on with more of the same promise. I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. 
but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Interesting poetic irony there. Who will you serve? You can either serve the king of Babylon. Oh, he'll take you, believe me, literally. The bondage into, into Babylon itself. Or you can serve the Lord your God. There's going to be a yoke upon your neck one way or another. And it's either the world's burdens, or as Jesus would say to those who labor and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. My, my yoke is, is, is easy. My burden is light. Oh, no man will serve, can serve two masters, but there are two masters vying for that service. The choice is up to us. And I think there's a connection about taking off the yoke of the world to make room for the yoke of the Lord. The Lord then goes on through Jeremiah, telling the people not to fear, that you will return to the land of your inheritance, even if you are scattered, as Israel was, or carried off captive, as Judah will be. In verse 11, he says, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations whither I have scattered thee. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. There will be some redemptive turbulence here. There will be some corrective chastisement. But that's what it's for. It's for correction more than punishment. I think too often that's the problem in our own criminal system. It's all, let's punish the offenders. And we don't do a very good job of rehabilitating them. Whereas God, it's all about rehabilitation. It's all about repentance and redemption. And so wherever you've been scattered, because here's the irony. Remember when we studied in Isaiah's day, the Assyrians are coming and scattering the, the northern ten tribes, and yet Assyria will be destroyed themselves. And so they were by the Babylonians. Well, Babylon, do, don't get ahead of yourself, because yes, you will carry captive Judah back into Babylon, but then you'll be destroyed by the Persians. It's each fish getting gobbled up by a bigger fish behind them, right? And so will go the kingdoms of the world. Well, if you're scattered within those kingdoms, then what's going to happen to you, O people of Israel, people of the covenant? Well, you are the people of the covenant, and God's covenant will still stand. That even if those other nations that you find yourselves in, the wicked world, though they come crash crashing down, the Lord remains to bear you up. Here we are, forced to live within the great and spacious building, as we long for for better days at the tree of life. And though that building will come crashing down and great shall be the fall thereof, we'll be able to dust ourselves off and pick ourselves up out of the rubble and make our way to the tree. That to me is a beautiful promise. And, and the way he says it, I will correct thee. It's like he's going back and forth between justice and mercy. Uh, you're going to be carried captive. They're going to be destroyed, but you won't. But you will be chastened. But it'll be within measure. It's for your own good. Just interesting how the Lord is trying to walk this narrow way with us who keep on wandering outside of it. But to be corrected in measure, I hope you know that the Lord never punishes out of his own of venting his anger. No, this is righteous indignation meant to turn us back to him. And so the, the punishment, the correction, the, the loss of spirit, whatever it might be that we endure, right? Punished more often by our sins than for them anyway. But it will be within measure, just enough 
to bring us to our senses and turn us back to him. In verse 12, For thus saith the Lord, Thy bruise is incurable, thy wound is grievous, there is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. Now that sounds pretty fatal and final, but listen to the Joseph Smith translation of that. Some major changes. Thy bruise is not incurable, although thy wounds are grievous. Is there none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up? Hast thou no healing medicines? That's what the Lord's really trying to get across here. Earlier in Jeremiah, remember, is there no balm in Gilead? Well, if you're looking for that kind of healing balm, it's not to be found in Gilead. It's to be found in God. And if you will turn to him, then yes, there is healing medicine. Your bruise is not incurable. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though there are putrefying sores, there's another graphic image from Isaiah, you can be healed. To understand what the Lord is, is pleading with us to do, and, and, and even put it into perspective that, of course, you're not finding healing medicines. You're not looking in the right places. He goes on the next verse, All thy lovers, back to that idea of covenant infidelity, all thy lovers have forgotten thee. They seek thee not. For I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Oh, all those other lovers, where are they now when you need help, support? It's interesting that there are those that you turn to in your days of, of Babylonian fun. There's the prodigal son out in this far country, living it up, wasting his father's inheritance. But when he hit rock bottom, he was alone with only the rock to bear him up. It's, it is interesting to see a world that does not have your best interests at heart. And when the going gets rough, will they, will they be there to help you? I feel for those who leave the church, for example, and leave even the social fabric in which they grew up. And is there a time when they miss that? Because <laughs> that's the amazing thing about a ward, just like a family. They're there for you even when we don't deserve them. That's part of their covenant. Keep reading, though. In verse 17, For I will restore health unto thee. I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. Because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Oh, what an irony that this city of holiness, the beauty of the nations. Some used to say in the ancient world that if you haven't seen the Temple of Solomon, then you haven't seen beauty. Because it is, it is a wonder. Forget the hanging towers of Babylon. Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. And yet, at this point, you're an outcast. This is Zion? Are you kidding? This ghost town? Because that's what Babylon is going to leave it looking like if we don't turn to the Lord for healing, for a restoration of our health. And then the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah continues to reassure the people of that promised restoration. In some way, it reminds me of section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, compared to what we see here, no one's seeking after Zion now. But in section 45, 
Anyone who is seeking for peace must come to this place of peace. Governed by the Prince of Peace himself, they will flock to Zion in the last days. But as the chapter ends in verse 22, this promise, this, rest, this reassurance, this restoration, ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Those are some beautiful possessive pronouns. That's a real relationship. Well, maybe this marriage therapy is going better than I thought. Well, we'll see. That is the covenant relationship, though. And we'll see more of that covenant renewed in chapter 31. Verse 2. This is one of the best chapters in the book, by the way. We, if you want to uh, kind of the, the climax, the high point, the center uh, out of which the rest of Jeremiah flows, then look at chapter 31. Go to verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Think about all the grace in the wilderness that Israel found during the Exodus. Manna from heaven every morning, water from the rock, clothes and, sh and shoes that wouldn't wear out during your wilderness wanderings. Yes, there is grace in the wilderness. And the ten tribes will find grace as they're scattered. The, the southern kingdom will find grace even in Babylon during their exile. We find grace even in the wilderness of the world. And here's why. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Why do you think it's an everlasting covenant? Not even your sins can get in the way of that. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee. Great verb there too. Drawn thee, not pushed thee, not compelled thee, not coerced thee. I'm here. You can come. And these cords of loving kindness will draw you nearer. Again, I will build thee, he promises, and thou shalt be built. Believe me, I count the cost. I, I know how the, how the construction will unfold. So you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. Virgin of Israel? I thought you were an adulterous wife. I thought you were a backsliding sister. Well, I'm going to forget that. And you to me, once you repent and, my, and your sins are remembered no more, you are a virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Sound like a, a renewal of the marriage vows? Sound like a restoration to the covenant? We're, we're having another reception. Uh, so get the tabrets out. Let's go out and dance like those making merry. Because we're ready to set off on a second honeymoon. And that's what God is offering this virgin Israel. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter all that you've turned yourself into in prior chapters of Jeremiah. Strong imagery, strong language prostitution, and so forth. But no, virgin of Israel, just come and let's, let's start everything over again. A new as well as an everlasting covenant. In verse 5, he says, Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is in the north, northern kingdom. That was already scattered over a century ago. But there will yet be vines planted there. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. They're not even surprising anymore. It's like, well, of course there's vines here. What, what else would you expect? 
well, I expected tumbleweeds. It was a land of desolation. Oh, that's all been forgotten. For there shall be a day, he says, that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim, again, northern kingdom, shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. It's so interesting that Jeremiah, who is a prophet in Judah to the southern kingdom, there's no northern kingdom left. Well, there is in God's mind. He knows exactly where each of those tribes have been scattered. He keeps his eye on them. We'll see that in just a moment. But this southern prophet speaking to the north, it's going to be okay. And then even more surprising, what will the northerners say in return? Let's go down to Zion, shall we? Well, up to Zion by way of elevation, down by way of cardinal direction. Let's go south. Let's get back to Zion. That was the problem in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, where Jeroboam splits off to create this northern Israel and thinks, people are going to want to go back down south for the temple. I can't let them do that. Let's set up some golden calves in Dan and Bethel and hope that idolatry will keep them away from, from going back to the God of Israel. It's, or the land of Judah, I should say. That's the irony here, though. This idea of let's go to Zion. And then when he says it goes from Samaria and Ephraim, then let's go down to Zion. Well, then that, that, isn't that erasing the borders? Exactly. It's breaking down the wall of separation that's been up for so many centuries. And so no wonder the verses end with gladness for Jacob, because that's the whole family. The remnant of Israel, because that's the whole family as well. This is reconciliation. This is family reunion. And siblings that had so much struggle, back to the prodigal son, the older brother, younger brother, it's okay, the father's been looking over them all. And let's go up to Zion and make wrong things right again. In verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. That's how far they've been scattered. And with them, no, notice who else he's bringing home the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together. A great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. I love this chapter. What a beautiful promise. To walk by the rivers in a straight way? Most rivers aren't straight. And so ask the pioneers, was it a straight shot from Nauvoo to Salt Lake? No. Why? Well, there's mountains to traverse and there's rivers to follow, which means wandering, meandering, and unfortunately having to cross the river over and over just to stay close enough to it to drink. <sighs> but that can, be, that can be difficult, but not for the Lord. I can make you, I can give you rivers of living water and still provide you a straight and narrow path that brings you home and brings all of you home. Scattered no matter where you are, including the blind and the lame, pregnant women, women in labor. I can't, first of all, being a pioneer at all would have been hard. I've done two treks and and mine were cakewalks compared to what the pioneers did, okay? 
but imagine if you had to go on trek while you were pregnant. Or imagine if you had to go on trek while you're in the middle of labor. Uh, that was the reality for many a pioneer woman. And I imagine it slowed down their progress. Imagine trying to help the lame walk to Zion. Imagine trying to help guide the blind to find their way. That's all going to be slow. But what the Lord is promising here is his own patience, that I will make sure that everyone finds their way back, blind, lame, pregnant, in labor included. That should give all of us hope. He's the ultimate trail captain, and our trek will end in Zion. In verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, declare it in the isles afar off. So this is a message he wants the entire world to hear, because that's just how far Israel, his people, have been scattered. Here's what you should tell them. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Whether that's the Assyrians, whether that's the Babylonians, whether that's Sin City or, or a, a wicked world, whether that is uh, Wall Street or Main Street, you name it. I know where you are. I know my, my sheep hear my voice. And this good shepherd will go out and gather you. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord. Like flowing uphill to the mountain of the Lord, like we saw in Isaiah. But flowing to the goodness of the Lord. No wonder there's this draw upward. He's offering us all that he has. There's his goodness. And what does it include? For wheat, and for wine, and for oil, and for the young of the flock and of the herd. Their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Can you picture this? Oh, here, here are a few of my favorite things, if you remember that song. Wheat and wine and oil and young flocks and herds. It's what the Lord is setting the table with. A feast of fat things, wine on the lees well refined, given to all nations. So come, dinner's on the table. And the way he says, he that scattered Israel will gather him. That's what I was saying just a few minutes ago. I know where they are. Uh, were you ever the one on Easter to hide all the Easter eggs? And some of them were so well hidden that nobody was able to find them. But you. Oh yeah, I remember you, you missed one. And I know exactly where it is. Because I put it there. Here's the Lord. He who scattered Israel will gather them. Not a soul will be lost. Verse 15, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation. We're going to see a whole book named after that in a moment. Bitter weeping, which is what Jeremiah himself was known for. Rachel, or Rachel, we would say, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Now, Matthew is going to quote this verse when he describes the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, when Herod finds out from the wise men that the real king of the Jews has been born. Well, it's an amazing fulfillment of that promise. No wonder Matthew, was, his attention was drawn to this, that yes, there in Bethlehem, there would be weeping in the land of Rachel, bereaved of her children, refusing to be comforted. Here is the more 
immediate. Remember the, the Isaiah layer cake? Well, here's the Jeremiah layer cake. Yes, that prophecy would be fulfilled in Jesus' day, but it was also being fulfilled in Jeremiah's. And there will be devastation, there will be lamentation, there will be loss. But in some ways, if you think about the later fulfillment, we've seen so many promises of a righteous remnant. There will be survivors. And if you think about the massacre of the, the, innocent, the, massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, who was that righteous remnant? It was righteousness himself. He would survive that ordeal. And as a result, he would make sure that there are righteous remnants across the board. That would, take, that would be true in Isaiah's day. It would be true in Jeremiah's day. It was true in Jesus' day, and it is true in ours. That no matter how bleak things get and how dark the world, there will always be a righteous remnant ready to move on. So with that in mind, the reality of sorrow in Israel, but the promise of good news to come. Look at verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears. I know I just said that you refused to be comforted. Well, be comforted, okay? Dry your eyes. For thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord. It's, it's not a waste of effort, all that you're doing for wayward children all that you're doing to try to gather Israel and bring the scattered back home. Thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. This is one of the reasons why I tell my students and why I've been telling more and more of you recently in person. As you come to me in tears often, worried about a wayward child or a wayward spouse or friends that have left the faith and you're devastated about that as we should be but we should not refuse to be comforted and so as i've said to you many of you in person permanent bad news is against my religion i trust too much in god i know him as a shepherd of the flock i know him as a father to israel I know he's the scatterer who knows where every Easter egg is and will gather them all home. And so as the promise, these are some of the most powerful words you could ask for. There is hope in thine end. And if you don't have that hope, you're not at the end yet. The story has not been finished. There are yet glorious chapters yet to come. We went from creation through fall, but there is on to atonement. So hold on to that. Thy children shall come again to their own border. How beautiful that he uses children as his, as his metaphor. Because it's not a metaphor, it's real. This is a literal promise about literal children literally coming home to the kingdom of God. I, I testify there is hope in thine end. I've seen it so played out so often and so beautifully with people returning. My, my wife's uncle left the church shortly after his mission, but her grandma, this, this wayward son's mother, never lost hope and for decades continued reaching out in love to this son. 
I've told you about her a little bit. He was so interested in astrophysics that she figured, well, I better get interested myself and studied just so she'd have something to relate to him with and talk to him about just to maintain the relationship. And at, with the passage of decades came a, a softening and a changing of heart. There came hope in the end. And he returned to the faith. It's amazing that to see that play out, and here's the promise before us. In verse 18 and 19, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. So this is what those people up north and soon to be uh, we people down south have been lamenting. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. That's a fascinating simile. I feel, I feel like I've been this bullock, this, this bull, this cow, unaccustomed to the yoke. I, I'm sorry, I didn't know how to follow instructions. I chafed against the yoke. I, I mean, I grew up in, in, in Egypt uh, with slave masters and taskmasters beating down upon me. I didn't like yokes. And so when you came with your list of commandments, it just felt like I had another taskmaster. I didn't realize that your yoke was easy and your burden was light. I didn't get it, and I'm sorry. I was unaccustomed to that yoke. I, as a, I was the oldest son in my family. I had an older sister, and then me, and then three little brothers and a, and a baby sister. She's not a baby anymore, sorry, Lorianne. Uh, but I, I remember when my sister was gone and my parents were gone, I was the babysitter, the default. And I had one particular younger brother that was a pain to babysit. Uh, he, he was a great guy, but he just wouldn't follow instructions. And if there was, you know, it's bedtime. No. And, I, and what he would always say is, I don't have to listen to you. Uh, does that sound like a little brother? Does it sound like Judah and Israel to the prophets century after century? I don't have to listen to you. Uh, you're not the boss of me. Uh, can, can you hear your children or your grandchildren saying that to each other? Uh, and, and sure enough, my, one of my younger brothers would throw that in my face every time I babysat him. He's four years younger. Uh, and, and there were times w we, that we went kind of head-to-head over that. Uh, maybe there was, there was probably some unrighteous dominion on, on my part, I'll admit. Uh, but I was young and figuring it out, too. But I remember years later, we're adults by now, and at one point my brother said to me, you know, Jared, I just want to apologize after I was not too late for you to accept it. But honestly, as a kid, I didn't understand the concept of delegated authority. So when I said, I don't have to listen to you, and you're not the boss of me, I know I said it flippantly and angrily, but that was a core belief on my part. <laughs> you weren't my parent, uh, because my brother was an obedient guy. He was a good kid. But the thought of delegated authority just was foreign. And so here is Judah admitting something similar. I, I was a bullock unaccustomed, unaccustomed to your yoke. In some ways, he could have said, I didn't realize how kind-hearted you were in putting it upon me. That, that was an easy burden compared to what the Assyrians and Babylonians, or Egyptians for that matter, fastened around my neck. But notice what Israel says next. This undomesticated wild bull, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. In other words, I, I want to be trained. I want to be domesticated. I want to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. So turn me. Help me repent. That's what turning comes from. For thou art the Lord my God. 
Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. It's like smacking, like, what? Why was I such an idiot? Why didn't I obey? Why didn't I listen? I was ashamed, they admit, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Oh, you get a, you finally get a hint of godly sorrow there. Once I knew what I had done was wrong, I smacked myself on the leg just thinking, what, in, what, what was I thinking? I'm sorry I didn't understand delegated authority. I'm sorry I didn't accept your prophet's words as if from thine own mouth. I just didn't get it. But now I do. Thank you for turning me. Now please don't turn away from me. In verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Talk about merciful rhetorical questions. Isn't he from my dear son? Oh, of course you are. Aren't you a pleasant child? Oh yeah, we had our rough patches. <laughs> Most children do. But I just remember the good days. And so, of course, I'm going to have mercy upon you. My bowels, my, my guts yearn in your direction. I remember you, prodigal son, even from afar. Turn to me. I, I am oh, staring out the window, looking, straining the eyes to see you come across the horizon so I can run to you and help you home. In verse 22, he asks another question. This one a little less rhetorical. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now in Hebrew, there's a word play, kind of a pun there, between the word for backsliding and the word for compass. So Jeremiah's having some fun here. He's channeling his inner Isaiah, I suppose. But what he's getting at here, okay, you backsliding daughter, I know you made mistakes. But let's imagine something unheard of, okay? Something, a new thing in the earth. And what will that new thing be? It'll be the woman compassing the man. Now, you could take this word compass as kind of encircle, put the arms around. This is the, the mother hen with her chicks. Well, what if it's the mother hen with the rooster? <laughs> and I'm going to protect you. That's an interesting one. So there's, that's one way to take this, this. Usually it's the man that protects the woman. All the women and children gather in and I'll, I'll protect you. We're going to reverse the roles here. But there's maybe even something better about this compass. Maybe it's not encompass them around in the arms of safety, but rather encompass them about in the arms of love. What if it were the wife? Let me put it this way. What if it were the wife that were pursuing the husband? Because usually in, in most cultures, it's the man that goes and woos the wife. Okay, he's the one that proposes. He's the one that does the, the courting. Uh, and she's the one that gets to decide whether she'll accept his advances or not. Uh, well, in my own case, my wife for months would not accept my proposals. Uh, and and when, people, when my students ask me, so how did you propose? I'm like, which time? They're like, huh? Like, I'm like, yeah, I proposed from March until October, unsuccessfully. <laughs> and my amazing wife just wasn't sure. And I mean, can you blame her, right? Uh, I finally said to her, you know, getting rejected, I can only do that so many times. It's a little hard on the ego, even for an unfeeling me, person like me. 
Uh, so I'll tell you what, I'm here for the duration. Uh, you are worth the wait. So whenever you feel like it's right, why don't you propose to me and I'll say yes. Well, I said that partly tongue in cheek, but that's exactly, exactly, that's actually exactly what happened. And when my wife finally gained an answer from heaven that she, she got her divine green light, she proposed to me. And I resisted the temptation to say, well, I don't know, let me give it some thought. Let me think about it for a while. No, it was an immediate yes. Uh, and it's been amazing 23 years ever since. But what I love here is that's what's being described as far as I can interpret it. But let's, let's try a new thing, shall we? Because remember all the imagery we saw last week, and with Isaiah as well, that husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Jesus and the church, Jehovah and Israel, this is the marriage pair. And it's been God who has been wooing Israel for centuries, and yet they don't seem to care. Israel is the, the adulterous wife. But imagine if she were to change. A change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of perspective to the point that she, we, began wooing God. That we went to Him. That we were the one down on our knees. Please accept me. And let me be thy people. Because I desire to have thee as my God. That's conversion. That's repentance. That is covenant making. And, and that is a new thing. A thing that, that better not be new with us. We need to be doing this. In verse 23, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. So this is how they'll speak. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. Someday they'll say that. Someday justice and holiness won't be something you avoid, O people of Judah. It will be something that defines you. Imagine if the nickname of Las Vegas, for example, were not Sin City, but rather, oh, Saint City. <laughs> city, a mountain of holiness, as it's said here. Or imagine some city or country that is famous for its corruption, infamous, I should say, for its corruption, and instead comes to be known as the habitation of justice. I mean, that's where justice lives. Really? That's not, it's, that hasn't been its reputation. True. It's amazing what repentance will do. And so here, Judah, Israel, this backsliding daughter, oh, no, 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 habitation of justice, mountain of holiness. It's the mountain of the Lord, after all. Verse 26, upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Can you imagine if you went to sleep with Jeremiah 31 on the mind? Let's just say you read that, those first few verses, those first 20 verses or so, and just... You went to sleep with that on your mind. That would be sweet sleep. And you would wake up with a smile on your face that we can change and God will forgive us. And it's a new, it's a new start. It's a new day. We will hold on to that thought because we'll see it again in Lamentations in what to me is one of the most breathtakingly beautiful verses in all of Scripture. But th that's, that's what I want uh, what, some people need soothing music 
Some people need oh, a mindfulness meditation to just get them down at night. My daughter always watches Bob Ross and <laughs> just listens to his calming voice. Uh, just lull her off into sweet dreams. Well, imagine Bob Ross reading Jeremiah 31. And here we are. Things are going to be okay. Sleep with that and you'll awake with joy. In verse 28, it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. Think back to the very first chapter of Jeremiah. Isn't that what Jeremiah was told he would be? That's, here's your to-do list, all these verbs, and here they are repeated. You're supposed to pluck up and break down, throw down, destroy, afflict. We are clearing the soil, ready, readying it for a new planting. We are demolishing the condemned building so we can build something better in its place. Because, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's the renewal of the wedding vows. There's the new and everlasting covenant. There's the second honeymoon. We're doing this. The days come. It's not yet. But in a coming day, in a latter day, there will be a new and everlasting covenant reestablished upon the earth that will send forth hunters and fishers to gather every last Easter egg. I promise you this. In verse 32, compare the covenants though. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I'm not going to do it like that before. Why? Well, it, it proved rather unsuccessful. He says, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So it wasn't, it wasn't me that, that was the problem in the marriage. But for whatever reason, the covenant that they made originally on Sinai, they just didn't hold. So what will the change be? Keep reading. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, so in the latter days, in this final dispensation, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the difference. The original covenant was an external one. I engraved it on tablets of stone. But the new covenant will be an inward one, engraven on the fleshy tables of the heart, as Paul will say. It has to be an internal thing, not an external one. In some ways, it has to be Melchizedek rather than Aaronic. Aaronic ordinances are typically the visible ones, the tangible, the external, I should say. It is a law of performances and ordinances, Abinadi explained. It's outward stuff. And it's meant to retrain the reflexes, okay? It's meant to help reconcile our will to the will of God. It's outward practice. But is anything happening on the inside? I don't know. It's meant to. It's meant to prepare us for that. But that's where Melchizedek ordinances come in. Those are the internal ones. Aaronic ordinances pull weeds. Melchizedek ordinances plant flowers. The, the, the original covenant, that law, was outward kinds of actions. 
This new covenant in our day has to be all about inward attitudes. It's not performances, it's relationships. It's not works, it's worship. And being changed thereby. It's almost like in our first marriage, before we, before you threatened divorce, and I still st held strong, before we started getting marriage therapy, uh, and before we decided to renew our vows and just get married all over again, it was just, we were going through, you, <laughs> the husband would say, were going through the motions. And there was external examples of obedience. Oh, you, we were seen in public together. But behind closed doors, there was no real unity. There was no real harmony. There was no real love from you to me. And for God to give us a second chance to internalize the covenant, that's what has to happen. It has to be heartfelt conversion, not lip service and mere compliance. That, it's, that's why Jeremiah 31 is so key in this whole thing. We have to internalize the covenants we make. In verse 34, he goes on, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a promise. Now, as a teacher, I'll admit this verse makes me a little nervous. Because uh, that this is what I do. I, I teach. But according to verse 34, I'm out of a job. Uh, well, go figure. You're, all all the, the, you students have surpassed the teacher. You know more than I do. Uh, because the Lord himself has become the teacher of us all. Believe me, I won't complain if I get to be a fellow student of yours of him. Right? So no more need to teach each other because everyone already knows. We don't have to whisper to our neighbors, get your knee down, because every knee has bowed. We don't have to say, confess with your tongue, because every tongue is confessing. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Remember Isaiah's promise there? Here's Jeremiah's version of that. No more need for teachers. Your role has been eclipsed, because we'll all know him. And how will we know him? That's why I love how it just all these phrases are strung together. For I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. Now think about that. What is the best way to come to know the Lord? It's to, it's to come to know him in his role as redeemer, as forgiver. It's to repent of our sins and lay them at the Savior's feet, those beautiful feet upon the mountains, because he's standing above us publishing personal peace. I remember your sins no more. You're forgiven. Now do you know me? Really know me? The kind of husband you never had to fear because there was nothing but love and mercy here waiting for you? This is so such a profound portrait of the Savior. In verse 38 through 40 then, notice how this chapter comes to its close. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. And, and you'll see that kind of language often in prophecy. Latter-day fulfillment. The days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. And the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gerib, and shall compass about to Goath. 
and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields unto the brook of Kidron, unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down anymore forever. Now, admittedly, that passage might not mean a whole lot to us because it has so many specific geographic locations, landmarks, you could say, that are unfamiliar to us. The Tower of Hananiel, what, what is that? The hill Garib, Gareb, Gareb, I don't even know how to pronounce the thing. Compass about to Goath, what's up with this horse gate? I don't know. Well, to those who grew up in Jerusalem, this land or the city that is under siege to the Babylonians, they'll know every landmark. Everything Jeremiah just mentioned to them would be, oh, I grew up next to that place. Oh, I saw that every day when I walk out the door. It's, imagine your hometown and someone listing places that no outsider would know, but that every insider cherishes. To me, the most important one is the brook Kidron. I do know that one. That's the stream that ran through Gethsemane. Symbolically, the water that washes away our sins. That's a place to remember. And it and all of its similar landmarks will be holy unto the Lord. And that changes everything from what the, the Jews there in Jerusalem are feeling at this moment. That it is a, a city of wickedness, not a place of holiness. And the Babylonians are coming to destroy us. Yes. You've allowed them to come in. But the day will come where the Lord drives all of that out. Because we don't want it anymore. And it will be replaced with redemption. We can be rebuilt. Every last landmark. Oh, I love it. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is one of those masterpieces in scripture that we need to hold on to and bring to pass in these last days. Jeremiah 32 and 33 then grow out of this, but I love what 32 describes. In this chapter, the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians is described, and it's brutal. In verse 2 and 3, then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Now you can picture why, Jer why Zedekiah would be so frustrated. It's like, come on, I'm trying to, to survive here. I'm the king of this city under siege, and I've got no strength against the Babylonians. The least you could do is try to strengthen my armies against them. Instead of instilling fear into their hearts by telling them that we're going to be destroyed and we ought to surrender instead. Remember last week? It's like, where's, the, where's Isaiah when we need him? To which Jeremiah could have said, well, yeah, where's King Hezekiah when we need him? Zedekiah, you're no Hezekiah. You have not prepared the people in righteousness. You're more of an every-man-for-himself kind of king, and we're going to see that play out in a moment. In fact, it'll be the last thing you ever see, king. So sorry if I'm not telling you good news, but I am prophesying truth to you. In fact, more than prophesying, I am personifying things. In some ways, thanks for throwing me in prison. It's a great visual aid. You know me, Jeremiah, I'm the king of visual aids, and I don't have my yoke to wear anymore. I don't have my clay pot to shatter. 
but I can be here in prison and therefore act as visual aid of what is going to happen to all of you. In some ways, you're already here with me. You're in prison to, to your own sin. But even in prison, Jeremiah is still teaching. Now, more object lessons beyond his own personal one. This one is fascinating. He ends up buying a field from a relative back home in Anathoth. And he takes the evidence of the purchase, the title, we would call it, the deed, and he has it placed in an earthen vessel to make sure it is preserved. Now, what are you doing? Especially from prison. Well, here's the idea. Verse 15, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Don't you get it? We're going to come back home. I'll bet my mortgage on this. In fact, I'll take out another mortgage. I'll buy more property. If you knew you were being driven out of a place, no, that's when you sell, not when you buy. We're, we're not, this place is going to be demolished, de devastated, destroyed. That's all right. We're, we're coming home. I consider this not only a safe investment, but a wise one. And that's what's amazing about this part of the story. Remember the false prophet said, oh, two years max and we'll come back. Jeremiah was like, yeah, times 35. Uh, it'll be 70 years. And 70 years of Babylonian captivity. But you are right about the eventual return. And I'll, I'll swear to that. In fact, I'll bet my money on it. I'll put my money where my mouth is. And I will buy more land. In fact, more of the land of my inheritance. That's how confident I am in the promises of God. And you ought to share that confidence, Judah. I know this is the case. And so I'll buy, I'll buy up more land as evidence. Jeremiah then offers a lengthy prayer from prison, praising God. He's no longer complaining about his suffering. Remember, we saw that last week. He's no longer threatening to quit and throw away his missionary tag. Now, the fire in the bones are still, it's still burning, uh, despite his, his difficult location. And in his prayer, verse 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm. And there is nothing too hard for thee, but it's not just thy omnipotence that amazes me. So he continues his prayer. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work. Sound like Isaiah? Wonderful counselor the mighty God. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. What a prayer. Nothing too hard for thee. Not even the Babylonian empire. That, that doesn't intimidate God. He'll free us from them. He'll bring us back home. I'm banking on it. He's great in counsel. He's mighty in work. And more than that, than that it's his love. He made us the promise. He's the husband that will not divorce us. He's the father that refuses to forget or forsake. So trust in him. Well, the Lord responds to Jeremiah's prayer and confirms all that Jeremiah has said, all that God has said. He, he reaffirms the covenant. Uh, he does remind them the people have been wicked. They're facing destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. But God also promises he will deliver them and gather them back home.
in verse 38, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. What a, what a renewal of the vow. What oneness. This is unity in the relationship. Best kind of marriage. A covenant relationship. A unified relationship where between the two of them there's only one heart and only one way. I loved as a kid looking at my parents and and often thinking that mom and dad were not two separate entities but it was like just this one being with two forms known as mom and dad. And when mom and dad becomes kind of a hyphenated or just one just one word a single term I'm grateful for my mom and dad and the unity that they showed throughout their marriage. Uh, but to see Israel and Jehovah, to see Christ and his people, mom and dad, we've still got some unifying to do, okay, until we are one heart and one way with him. But we'll get there. He's, he won't give up on us. Verse 41, yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart, with my whole soul. You see how invested in the relationship God is? He's not holding anything back. And no wonder he can ask of us to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. That's how much he loves us. His whole heart, his whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring unto them all the good that I have promised them. That's something to hold on to as well. In fact, section 45, which I referred to earlier, tells an interesting, oh, it, it, it's, the Lord is explaining to Joseph Smith and the early saints the signs of the times, of the second coming, the last days. And it's pretty brutal, okay? It's more Babylonian captivity and destruction and so on. And, and he, it's almost like the Lord gets a sense that his audience there is starting to, the blood's starting to drain from their faces. They're starting to get a little nervous. And that for the Lord, brings on some deja vu. <laughs> because he says to Joseph in section 45, you know, when I told my original apostles about the signs of the times, they kind of freaked out too. Yeah, you're reminding me of them. <laughs> he says, when I told the original apostles about the, the de destruction in the last days, they were troubled. Well, yeah, you think? You read Jeremiah, the, the people are troubled. You read Matthew 24, the original apostles were troubled. You read section 45, yes, we can be troubled by these, these last days. And yet what the Lord says to them in section 45 was, think about it though. If you see these difficulties fulfilled, if you see that the the prophecies of woe and wickedness and destruction and consequences are being fulfilled, then what else can you trust in that the promises are being fulfilled as well? I love that in section 45. See the negative and allow it to confirm to you the promise of the positive. And that's what Jeremiah is getting at here. Yes, the evil will happen, but so will the good. So bank on it. Real estate in Zion is a safe investment. Hold on to the deed. <laughs> okay? it's a, there's a happy ending and an incredible rate of return on that investment. 
Why? Because of Jeremiah 33. Here is the culmination. We're going to change gears once we get to 34. But here is the culmination of this, these chapters of consolation and of reassurance. Because this is a messianic prophecy. As good as many of those that Isaiah gave us. Jeremiah is still in prison. But the Lord speaks to him again and says in verse 3, Call unto me and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knewest not. I love the Lord's desire there. Like, I want to give you so much, but I do want you to ask for it. Okay, I'm ready. I'm waiting. But call. And, and get ready for me to call you right back. In Jeremiah's case here, the Lord reaffirms Jerusalem, Jerusalem's imminent destruction, but also promises in verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and cure. How's that for balm of Gilead? Or in this case, balm of God. I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom, it's all the same to me. It's my people. Everyone will be back. I will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Isn't that the future we are all hoping for? Health and cure, peace and truth. Beautiful nouns there. And how does it come? Through a list of beautiful verbs, like being built by him, being cleansed by him, being pardoned by him. He will do all of those things. He's promised. Now, despite all that the people were facing in those dark days, what would they someday hear? Verse 11, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Yes, it's marriage time. The voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. How's that for a wedding hymn? And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise unto the house of the Lord. For I will cause to return the captivity of the land, as at the first, saith the Lord. Don't forget Jeremiah is still in prison, and yet he's singing marriage songs. He is praising the Lord. This is Joseph Smith as he's hiding out from the mobs in Nauvoo, and in an attic somewhere where he can't even stand up straight. And he's writing, or he's receiving revelations like section 128 that is so full of exclamation points. Even the mountains and the hills will sing along with him. That's the sense I get here. Jeremiah is giving the people hope because a Messiah will come. Verse 14, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, prophecy of the future, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch, capital B, the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. We saw that name last week with its incredible combination of the Lord with all of his perfection, but the Lord our righteousness. There's the part that we must play. And it's not our righteousness independent. It's our connection to the Lord, our righteousness. 
It is, it is His grace that changes us. It is His balm that heals us. He's the branch. Even from this stump of Jesse, it's going to grow forth again. The Messiah will come to make right every wrong. Now, these are conditional promises, we have to remember. So, Jeremiah makes it clear that if the people break their covenants with God, then God will not be able to keep his covenants with us. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. Unfortunately, I'm also bound when you don't. Bound to bless you in the first case. Bound and gagged where I cannot bless you, cannot speak to you, cannot confirm or console or comfort because you don't have the ears to hear. And that's the warning of Jeremiah 34. If you force God to have the contract nullified, the covenant dissolved, then what are we left with? Well, we're left with the, the rest of the sad history of Judah. The destruction of Jerusalem, the demolition of the temple, the gather, gathering, <laughs> tough word, the gathering out of Jerusalem, all these captives that are then exiled in Babylon for 70 years. That's... The rest of Jeremiah, buckle up and prepare yourself, isn't as good as where we started. And so as we now shift into Jeremiah 34 and beyond, hold on to the promises of 30, 31, 32, 33. The new marriage, the new heart, the new covenant, the branch of Israel, the Lord our righteousness, because things are about to go south pretty quick. What you see in Jeremiah 34 is this Babylonian attack, the, the siege. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to go back to King Zedekiah. I know he doesn't like you much because you keep prophesying evil, his evil, but go back and repeat everything you've already said because he hasn't changed. He's been unwilling. Judah will fall. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Zedekiah will be taken captive back to Babylon. He won't die in the battles. That's the good news, but you'll want to. You would have preferred that. No, you will live to see the fulfillment of all these promises. So Jeremiah does exactly that. He goes back and he adds one other interesting detail for our sake. You see, Zedekiah, back in, the, in Exodus, it said that, okay, you just got freed from bondage in Egypt and it was four centuries worth of it. We can't let that happen again. So on a sabbatical year, on the seventh year, all the slaves go free. All the indentured servants are, are free. Uh, and that way we won't fall back into the problem of perpetual servitude. Well, at, at this point, that, Zedekiah had done that. He had freed the servants, freed the slaves. And part of that was self-serving. Like, hey, if you'll work for us, if you'll help defend us against the Babylonians, uh, we're under siege and it's all hands on deck and we need everyone that we can. And so let's live that law. Fine. Well, unfortunately for their sake... Zedekiah went back on his word. There's some interesting history here where the Egyptians are coming to fight the Assyrian, excuse me, the Babylonians, and in the middle of a siege on Jerusalem, well, that forces the Babylonians to lift the siege for a brief time till they can put the Egyptians back in their place. And then they can go back and put the, the, the Judahites, the Jews, in their place as well. But during that period uh, of we need all the help we can get, let's free everyone. Let's give them, let's keep our covenant of liberation. But then as soon as the Babylonians kind of scatter for a moment, oh, uh, never mind, never mind, get back to work. W really? 
And Jeremiah pushes back against that as well. He says to the king in verse 17, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord. Now this is where there's it's some interesting poetic justice. You were supposed to proclaim liberty to the people permanently. You only did it temporarily and, and self-servingly. Hypocritically, you could say. So fine, I will proclaim liberty instead, but of a certain kind. I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, to the famine, and I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. How's that for liberty? You're free to be slain. You're free to suffer. And you're free to starve. This is more of that enforced empathy. Because you didn't care about your servants. You didn't care about slaves. You kept them in bondage and only were using them, whether bond or free, you were using them for yourself. No, that's not how it works. And so you will, have, you will be delivered, liberated into those kinds of things as well. He then says in verse 18, I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant which have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. Great imagery there. You remember, it feels like years ago, when we were back in Genesis, what, 15? And Abraham isn't sure, can God really keep his promise? Because my wife and I are getting old. And the Lord makes him do that strange ritual of taking animals and cutting them in half. That's what he's referring to. When you cut the calf in twain, in two, we say to make a deal, or we say to make a covenant. The Hebrews would say to cut a covenant. We sometimes say that. I'll cut you a deal. But to cut a covenant, often they would take an animal and cut it in half as if to say, may the Lord do that to me if I break the covenant. If I separate myself from you, then, it, then I'm separating myself from myself. Cut me in half. Divide me in twain. And you did that. And then you passed between the parts thereof. We talked about that in Genesis 15 also. You got all these half animals and lay them out opposite from each other. And what have you just done? You've laid out the parameters of your promises. You've identified the confines of covenant. You've marked out the straight and narrow path. Stay within it. And that's what they promised they would do. They marked the covenant path. They're just not walking within it. Why? Jeremiah then shifts to chapter 35, and it seems completely out of place. Chronologically, it is. It's, it seems, well, it's a bit of a flashback. We're no longer in the reign of Zedekiah. We rewind the clock a ways, about 17 years to be precise, and we're now in the reign of Jehoiakim. And there's a story here that sure seems irrelevant, and yet it isn't. It's the account of a very little-known group called the Rechabites. And they had lived centuries before. I mean, I had to, I'm like, who? I had to look it up again and then reread the story back in, uh, in the historical books to even refresh the memory of, about these people. It was during the reign of Jehu up north in the northern kingdom. And it's like, wait, Jehu who? Yeah, exactly. I told you it was a, a letter, lesser known story. 
But Jehu is trying to uh, reform the northern kingdom, trying to clean house. And there's lots of dirt, dirt in the house to clean. But he goes to this group, the Rehabites, and, and they have made an interesting covenant with God. Now, like I said, this is centuries ago. What does it have to do with Jeremiah's ministry? Well, as Babylon is on its way, a lot of people in the outskirts throughout the land of Judah come into Jerusalem for safety. They kind of hunker down, okay? Cross the moat and pull up the drawbridge, so to speak. We're in the king's uh, environment. Maybe he can protect us. And so these Rechabites, which had lived further north, uh, they came down to Jerusalem for safety. And Jeremiah is told by the Lord, go talk to them. Go find this little group of people uh, and keep in mind the story that's, that they're famous for, or, well, that, that they need to be famous for, okay? We'll see it in these next few verses. This is chapter 35, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah goes to the Rehabites, brings them to the temple, and offers them wine to drink, because that's what the Lord told them to do. But here's verse 6. But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rahab, our father, commanded us, and this was centuries ago, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. This is like a permanent Nazarite vow. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Now, interesting promise. Uh, and it was, like I said, centuries, made centuries ago. But there's this idea of I'm going to be something of a Nazarite. I'm going to put myself on a higher standard and hold myself to that standard. And in their case, add to that, we're not going to build cities and houses. and We're going to be nomads. We, d we are going to overtly reject settled city life with all of its negative influences. Urbanization is one of the drivers of secularization, to be honest. And sometimes when we, uh, well, look at the way it works in, even in our day, that large cities, we tend to forget God because we're surrounded by man-made things that are so impressive, and we tend to worship the God of the world we inhabit. And unfortunately, city slickers can sometimes lose their touch with the God of nature, the God of the universe. And the kinds of Babylonian influences that infiltrated cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, cities like Samaria and Jerusalem. Well, these people, these Rehabites, don't want to have anything to do with it. Think of like monks that just renounce the world. And I don't want any part of it. Now, why on earth would God tell Jeremiah, bring them to the temple, they'll appreciate that at least, and offer them wine to drink? Wait a minute, they, aren't they the guys that promised that they wouldn't take it? Exactly. See if they'll keep their promises. Because the, most of the people you're used to talking with don't keep theirs. So go meet someone that will restore your faith in humanity, okay? Six and seven, they say, we will drink no wine. And eight, they say, why? Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us. Now does it make a little more sense why we have this chapter in Jeremiah? Right on the heels of the warnings about broken promises and the consequences of that. Right on the heels of, let's, let's make a new covenant, shall we? And let's put it on the inward parts. Let's actually keep it this time around. 
In fact, let me introduce you to a group of people that can be exhibit A that it's possible. And this, this amazing group of people that kept the promise that their ancestors had made. And even when they are offered easy ways to break their word, they refuse to do so. In verse 14, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rahab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed. Wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Are we going to do something similar? For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. Ah, now it becomes obvious. Let's compare the two. And here we have the positive example. And what are you left realizing about yourselves, people of Judah? Yeah, you're the negative example. We all have the choice to make. And no matter how dark things become, there's always the opportunity to, to be the exception to that rule. We can be points of light, even in the midst of darkness. We can keep our covenants, even if most other people choose not to. And as a result of your disobedience, the fact that you're not like the Rehabites, you're going to be punished by the Babylonians, while the Rehabites will escape all that. Can I be any more obvious? Here's another visual aid for you. He says in verse 18, Because ye have obeyed the commandments of Jonadab your father, here's Jeremiah speaking to the Rehabites, because you've obeyed those words, because you've kept all his precepts, because you've done according unto all that he hath commanded you, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rahab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. How's that for a righteous remnant? How's that for a promise from the promise keeper, God, to a group of promise keepers themselves, the Rehabites? Uh, they are a group worth remembering. God remembered them. Then Jeremiah used that memory to try to wake up the people to be better than they were. Well, most of the people didn't want to remember that. Didn't want to remember any of it. Again, visuals stick in the mind a little bit longer. Re uh, realities, more than just metaphors, uh, or more than just words, I should say. Let, let me show you the deed of my property in Anathoth. Uh, let me act something out. Let me show you something. Let me write it down in a book so that you'll see that this is words set in stone. We'll see more of that in Jeremiah chapter 36, because Jeremiah, again, is told to write things. I need a paper trail, okay? So here's another flashback to the reign of Jehoiakim. Why is it placed here? Oh, good question, but it's a time for us to remember something important. Back in that time, Jeremiah as the prophet, Jehoiakim as the king, the Lord tells Jeremiah, verse 2 and 3, take thee a roll of a book, so a scroll, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations. Remember, Isaiah had burdens for Moab and Edom and Babylon and all these other groups. Jeremiah will too. That's, we're going to see a lot of that through the rest of this book. But I want you to write this down for everybody. Your people, everybody else's people, you're all my people. And do it from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. And who knows, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return that means repent, every man from his evil way, 
that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. See, that's the power of having written words. There's something wonderful about listening. I mean, I, I hope that, that we're doing that together and it's making a difference. But the fact that you're also looking down at the page and seeing scripture in front of you, that allows the lessons that we talk about to be remembered when you go back to these words. I met one of you recently and you had uh, the addition of scripture that has massive, massive margins. And as you were, as I caught you studying your scriptures, uh, I was so impressed with how much you'd, how much marginalia is the word, <laughs> how much you'd written in those margins based on, on your study. And that's the power of having something written down. And so, like we saw back at the beginning of, t of this week's study, and as we're seeing it now again in chapter 36, have it right in front of their face. Let them go back to it and pour over it and think it through because there are consequences to your decisions, good and bad. Make your choice. Now, at this time in the story, Jeremiah is basically under house arrest, but he calls for Baruch, his scribe, and says, write this down. And sure enough, he writes it all down and then says, go to the temple and read it to everyone. Let them have received the message from the Lord. And Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah, does exactly that. Now, when he gets there, there's a man named Micaiah. Don't worry about the names, since there's no quiz at the end here. But there's a man, Micaiah, hears it all, and he's a tattletale. Uh, and so he runs back to the king, Jehoiakim at this time, and, and tells on Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah's been saying bad things about us all over again. He keeps the Jeremiah-ad. Uh, and here's another one, and it's not him this time. He sent this servant, but he's, the servant knows exactly what to say because he's got it all written down right in front of him. And that's when a light bulb goes on in King Jehoiakim's mind, thinking, oh, it's written down. Well, I can get rid of that. And so, notice what happens next, verse 16 to 18. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, Well, he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. I mean, how did you think they were going to come? Now, they have something up their sleeve we're going to see in a moment. But I do find it interesting that, yes, they were afraid about the words, the content of the message. Like, really, is that going to happen to us? I hope not. But in fighting against it, what were they asking about? So how'd you get this stuff anyway? How did it come about? Uh, I, I'm scared of the message, but let's let, so let's not talk about the message. Let's talk about logistics, shall we? And how this came about. Maybe there's something there we can work with. It's amazing that from the very earliest days of the church, that's what people did with the Book of Mormon. It's still what people do with the Book of Abraham. That people tend not to care about content and instead, instead get all worked up over provenance, which is a word meaning, where does it come from? They get worked up over logistics on translation issues and turn a blind eye to the result of that translation. Like, okay, can we not talk about the message? Can we not talk about the fact that the book of Abraham teaches premortality better than anywhere else in scripture? That it links souls and stars in ways that are mind-blowing, this astronomy lesson? that it grounds the Abrahamic covenant so much more clearly than the book of Genesis does. The content of the book of Abraham, the message of it, mind-blowing. And yet, what do those that want to attack it do? 
Well, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Explain, explain that. Or the Book of Mormon. Rather than get lost in doctrine that is soul-expanding, rather than trying to make sense of its depiction of the scattering and gathering of Israel, its testimony of Jesus Christ, its explanation of elements of the atonement that are better explained in the Book of Mormon than anywhere else in Scripture, the content of the Book of Mormon is an absolute miracle and masterpiece. And yet, what do people want to talk about? Well, how did Joseph translate it? And in the early days, it was like, what are you talking about? Angels and gold plates and stone spectacles. And this is impossible. And almost every newspaper report that talked about the Book of Mormon said nothing about its message and only talked about how the stories of its coming forth. And people missed the point. In our day, it's no different. But how did he do it? And people getting worked up over a stone and a hat or worked up with the plates being under a cloth somewhere. And ask Joseph himself, how'd you do it? That's what everyone wants to know. And Joseph's response, gift and power of God. That doesn't tell me anything. Well, why don't you open the gift? Why don't you experience the power? And maybe you won't be so concerned about minutia, historical logistics, that seem in your mind to have eclipsed the word of God. It reminds me of when Jesus heals the man born blind. And because they don't want people to understand the message that that miracle is conveying. What do the scribes and Pharisees do? Well, how did he do it? Explain the logistics. Even Enos got caught up in that when he felt his sins swept away, his guilt swept away, and he was told his sins had been forgiven. What's he asked? Lord, how is it done? And the Lord says, well, because of thy faith in Jesus Christ. And you picture Enos going, that doesn't really answer my question. How is sin forgiven? How is guilt swept away? Oh, you want to understand the logistics of the atonement? It's way over your head. And if you had to pick between the two, I would hope that you would rather feel its effects rather than understand its inner workings. I hope this is making sense. I'm just, I'm struck by that because of all the stuff I've read and experienced of people trying to attack the Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Abraham, and so on. Because this a similar thing is happening here. We're going to attack the words of Jeremiah. We're scared to death of what they signify. And so let's eliminate them somehow. And the first thing we're going to do is shift the attention to the manner of their coming forth. Okay? I think this is a, there's some interesting parallels here. But then keep reading. They bring the, the scroll. They have it read before the king. And in verse 22 and 23, Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. I was actually in Israel over the winter, and it does get cold there. I was there, and it snowed on occasion. Okay? So there he is, warming himself by the fire. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, so Jeremiah has his scribe, the king has his reader, and he reads a couple of parts, uh, paragraphs, leaves they're called here. Then he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth, until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. 
So we got to get rid of this somehow. We don't, we do not like the message on this scroll. So read a little bit, you know, unroll a foot or two, and then oh, I don't like any of that. Cut it and throw it into the fire. Now there's nothing to worry about because we already asked Baruch how he got it. And the prophet just dictated it to him. He wrote it down. So evidently this is the only copy. And if we can destroy it, then there goes the word of God. This actually reminds me of the 116 pages. If we can eliminate it or doctor it or just mess with it somehow, then there's no way that Joseph can continue his work of translation. Well, verse 24 and 25. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. In other words, they were completely unfazed by the warnings on the scroll. And, probably even more damning, unfazed by what they had just done to those words. I don't want that to have anything to do with them. I don't want my people to hear them. Let's just get rid of the whole thing. And we don't care. We're not afraid of what we've done. Nevertheless, Elnathan and Deleah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. Now, I have no idea who Elnathan and Deleah and Gemariah are. And that's okay. God knows who they are. Jeremiah knows who they are. And the fact that these three named heroes were willing to stand up to the king when nobody else would. No one else is rending their garments. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing to God's word? What are we doing to Jeremiah's? What are we doing to God himself that would bring about this kind of Jeremiah? Well, these three were rending their hearts. These three were worried about what was going on in their city and had the courage to stand up to the king, even though the king ignored them. Jeremiah, you're not completely alone. There are a few brave exceptions to the general dismal rule. Uh, the next thing that happens, though, having ignored those people, the king then sends troops to go capture Jeremiah and Baruch. Let's gather them all up. But the Lord preserves them. And then he tells Jeremiah in verse 28, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. In fact, then go tell Jehoiakim that destroying the words doesn't erase their threat of his destruction. Yeah, go ahead, be my guest. You can ignore the warning, but it's still all going to be fulfilled. You don't need a scroll. It's written in God's heart, and it will come to pass. But in, just in case you need a second copy, or if the people want to hear it or reread things, Baruch, get your pen out. Get your quill and in verse 32, then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And as if that weren't bad enough. And there were added besides unto them many like words. Oh, you didn't like my first edition, King Jehoiakim? Well, buckle up and prepare yourself for the second edition, because it's going to be revised and expanded. Actually, it wasn't even revised. It's the same words as before, but it is expanded. That's miraculous that God could say, I mean, if you've ever like lost an essay and it disappeared online and it wasn't saved, and then you're scrambling because like, there's no way I'm going to be able to reproduce something as amazing as that incredible first draft. <laughs> 
Well, God can help. And to add, in some ways, it's almost like Jehoiakim, bad idea. You would have preferred the, sec- the first version over the second. The second was even harder on you and your iniquity. And again, like the 116 pages, oh, Satan, you should have stuck with the first version. It was inferior to the second. Mormon's abridgment of the small plates of Nephi couldn't hold a candle to Nephi's original. And that's what we have in the Book of Mormon. So thanks, adversary. (laughs) You got rid of the first draft. Thanks, Jehoiakim. What we have in Jeremiah uh, is much better than the original. Well, Jeremiah's not done suffering, though. Okay, he was preserved to be able to make the second copy, but Jeremiah 37 shows that he's back to prison. We're back to the reign of Zedekiah. Fast forward, okay, uh, or at least return to the present. No more flashbacks for now. This time, Pharaoh's army has moved north, uh, which again, like I said, scares off the Babylonians just long enough that they retreat and and the people of Judah and Jerusalem can kind of come up for air. But, but like I said, Zedekiah is feeling safe now. So back into slavery, all you servants, and Jeremiah, get back in prison yourself. Now, the Lord warns Jeremiah to warn Zedekiah, this is a temporary reprieve. Don't get comfortable now, okay? The, Babylon, the Babylonians aren't gone for good and because the Egyptians that you are putting your trust in are a far cry from putting your trust in God. You've placed uh, flesh, your trust in the arm of flesh and the Egyptians don't have much. It's a matter of time and the Babylonians will, Babylonians will come home. Verse 9, thus saith the Lord, deceive not yourselves. You're fooling yourselves. This is a temporary reprieve. Don't let it lull you into a false sense of security. Yes, justice might be slow in coming, but it always gets its man. So, deceive not yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, shall surely depart from us, for they shall not depart, at least not permanently. For though ye had smitten the whole army of the Chaldeans that fight against you, and there remain but wounded men among them, yet should they rise up every man in his tent and burn this city with fire. So, don't fool yourself, Zedekiah, into thinking you're safe. They've only retreated to regroup defeat the Egyptians, and come back and destroy you. And while I'm at it, even if you had completely decimated the Babylonian army, which hasn't happened, but if you could and you felt all that surge of adrenaline, like, look what we did. We're starting to sing, we are the champions back in the barracks. No, if their only survivors were a few scattered, smitten stragglers, even those people would come and burn our city down to the ground. We haven't repented, so we can't, be, we, can't, we, we can't be forgiven. We can't be preserved. So Jeremiah ends up trying to leave Jerusalem to go back home. I mean, I bought more land uh, in, the, in my land of inheritance. I want to go check it out. It's a safe investment after all. But the people there end up arresting him and charging him with treason and bringing him back to Jerusalem. So he's trying to escape. He's trying to go defect to the Babylonians. I mean, yeah, that's what it is. He's been this undercover Babylonian agent. No wonder he's telling the people that we need to surrender to the Babylonians or our God will destroy us. Oh, whatever. Not only is he a false prophet, he's a false Israelite. He's a false person of Judah. He's a Babylonian in disguise. So no wonder Zedekiah takes him and throws him back into prison, or at least the princes do. 
He's there for many days, but then notice 17. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. And the king asked him secretly in his house. I mean, I can't let the people know, certainly not the princess. And then I'm, I'm actually talking to a prophet, one that I, uh, down deep, actually believe in. No, 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 can't have anybody know that. So come secretly. And he says to him, hey, is there any word from the Lord? You got any word for me? What, what, are you going to burn it in the fire like your predecessor did? You got a little pen knife to cut out the parts that don't sound very good to you? What do you mean, do I have any word for you? You reject every time I give you any word. Jeremiah says, oh, there is. For, said he, thou shalt be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. <laughs> I love how unapologetic Jeremiah is. This is not what you're going to want to hear. Deal with it. And you picture Zedekiah like, I got you out of prison so that you could come talk to me. Well, you're the one in prison. I'm trying to get you out. Uh, you want to send me back to prison and therefore stay in your own? Then be my guest. But that is the word of the Lord to you. Verse 18 and 19. Moreover, Jeremiah said unto King Zedekiah, What have I offended against thee, or against thy servants, or against this people, that ye have put me in prison? Where are now your prophets, which prophesied unto you, saying, The king of Babylon shall not come against you, nor against this land? Where's all those false prophets that give you false assurances? Oh, is it the fact that you know they're false? And that's why you're coming to a true prophet? Well, as a true prophet, I'm only going to tell you the truth. And no, it's not what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. Will you do anything about it? Well, Jeremiah implores the king, don't send me back to prison, please. I don't know if I will survive there, is what he says, which lets you know just what kinds of conditions he was under, that he was suffering. In verse 21, then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah into the court of the prison. Now there's some better living conditions than in the dungeon itself. It's almost like the jailer in Carthage saying to Joseph, yeah, why don't you stay in this room rather than in the dungeon itself? But he says, but Zedekiah goes on, and he commanded that they should give him daily a piece of bread out of the baker's street until all the bread in the city were spent. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So yeah, you're still not as free as you want to be, but you're not suffering quite as intensely as before. And make sure he lives. Even if the rest of the people are starving to death, as long as there is bread in the city, he gets a loaf. It's interesting. You get a sense of Zedekiah here. Uh, too, too weak to do what's right, but also uh, too aware to completely go against the better angel of his nature. He, he knows more than he's letting on. And so he's trying to treat Jeremiah with some level of respect or dignity or at least preservation. This... He reminds me a lot of Pilate. Oh, I'm trying. I know Jesus is innocent, but what do I do? I'm scared of the people. It reminds me of Herod with John the Baptist. Oh, I know that he's calling me out, but there's things about what he says that I know down deep are true. But what will the people think if I show weakness in the face of people that are, I can't do it. It's just so interesting how often we turn against what we know is right because we're afraid of what people will think about us if we do so. Well, we see this unfold in the next chapters. Chapter 38, 
Jeremiah keeps on prophesying. He tells the people that they have to surrender or the Babylonians will destroy them. They're right outside. Uh, and then you'll fall either to the sword or to the famine or to the pestilence, the big three. Well, as expected, the princes of the, of the people are absolutely furious. Why are you weakening our hands? So, verse 4, Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. We've got to get rid of him once and for all. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in this city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. Evidently, these princes still think they can actually win the war, which is such a pipe dream. But they keep accusing, For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. And nothing could be further from the truth. The princes are accusing Jeremiah of being like uh, Rabshakeh. Remember when the Assyrian general was there and he was talking smack in Hebrew to scare all the men on the wall? And now these princes are saying, that's exactly what Jeremiah is doing, this Babylonian double agent. He's, he's, trying, he's weakening our people by telling them there's no hope. Well, he gave them the hope, but it was repentance and nobody wanted to take that offer. No, Jeremiah is not Rabshakeh in this story. He is Isaiah in this story, trying to help us live the gospel and receive the blessings of God. Just the people won't do it. So verse 5 and 6, Then Zedekiah the king said, Fine, behold, he is in your hand. For the king is not he that can do anything against you. I told you this, that he was like Herod. I told you he was like Pilate. A total abdication of responsibility. This is a spineless puppet king. No wonder the Babylonians picked Zedekiah to put him on the throne. Like, this guy has no backbone. And so there he is. Jeremiah, I wish I could do something for you. I can't. Because the princes are telling me that, come on, grow up and live up to what you know down deep is right. But he can't. So they took Jeremiah, cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water, but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. Now's another one of those times I could picture Jeremiah taking off his missionary tag. Being frustrated with God. Why? I thought you said you were going to deliver me. Oh yeah, I guess you always have. Never mind. Still got the fire in the bones. <laughs> I remember the first time, he didn't even last a whole verse. Well, this time he didn't even start a verse of complaint. It was just, okay, this is where I'm at. Then fine. In some ways, he could probably say, huh, thanks again for yet another visual aid. Because I am you, and here I am sinking even deeper into the mud. Imprisoned by the consequences of the decisions that are being made all around me. I'm not alone down here. I may be the one stuck in the mud, but <laughs> you're the ones that are facing imprisonment, and, and more than that, sword, pestilence, famine. It's all on its way. However, there was one compassionate man in court. Remember we met three exceptions to the rule earlier? Well, here's one beautiful exception to the rule here. His name is Abedmelech, and the name means servant of the king. Now, literally, he was the servant of the lowercase k, king. Zedekiah. In this moment, metaphorically, he is the servant of the capital K king because he stands up for Jeremiah. 
He's an, he's a, an Ethiopian, so there's an outsider, non-Israelite, and he's a eunuch, so he's the ultimate outsider. Uh, could never possibly fit in. But remember what Isaiah prophesied and promised about eunuchs that held to the covenant and tried to do their best? Well, Abedmelech is a perfect example of this. And he has the guts to stand up to the king. He says in verse 9, My lord the king, I am your servant after all, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. He is a prophet. I'll say it out loud. The prophet whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city. The lifted siege and how it came crashing back down upon them. And it got worse. And we're running out of food. Can you imagine the desperation? We're going to see more of this. It gets worse. Uh, before the, the walls fall down. Before they have to surrender to the Babylonians. Because there's no choice in the matter. Uh, it's... If you remember when trying to get toilet paper when COVID first came. And it's not available anywhere. What are we going to do? Or when hurricanes would come through Puerto Rico on my mission and last minute we'd go to the store like, maybe we should probably, get, I don't know, get some extra rice or something to wait it out. And there was, the only rice we found were like grains of it uh, that, were, that had fallen out of sacks as people were mad dashing through grocery stores trying to get whatever they could to survive. Well, there's no more bread left. And if you leave Jeremiah down in the dungeon, sinking in the mire, he'll die before we do. And he's our only hope. So verse 10, what's Zedekiah going to do? On the one hand, he was pulled in Jeremiah's direction, but didn't want people to know. And the people said, so he went with them. And now this Ethiopian, but you're just an Ethiopian eunuch. You're just an outsider. Why would I listen to you? Well, verse 10, then the king commanded Abedmelech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence 30 men with thee. You'll need all the help you can get. And take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. Wow, good choice, Zedekiah. But it took an Ethiopian eunuch to call you out, bring you back to your senses? Zedekiah is such a chameleon, willing to change colors where, with, to, to fit with whomever he's with. I hope we're not. I hope we only mirror the Lord and not the princes of Judah or the, or the people that don't have our best interests at heart. Well, Abedmelech goes to the dungeon. He brings with him a bunch of old rotten rags and he kind of ties them all together to make cords to lower down to Jeremiah. They're in a rough way that, I mean, this is somebody in the palace and what, there's no ropes? There's no, nothing, no, we just get whatever you have. We're at the end of our rope, literally, uh, and so here's some, uh, some old rags that we'll, we'll gather together. Verse 12 and 13. Abedmelech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes under the cords. So wrap them over your arms so that you're, they're under your armpits. Then your arms can hang down or you can just hold on to them like that. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now that seems to be going into a lot of detail for this prison break or this, this help out of the, the mire. It makes me wonder, I mean, if Jeremiah were strong enough, lower down a rope and I'll, I'll pull myself up. Uh, or I'll just hold on, and then you've got 30 men, 31 men, Abedmelech and his 30 others, surely you can hoist me out of it. Well, yeah, they're going to hoist him out, but 
if he's being told, wrap these rags underneath your armpits, in my, I get this mental image of just what a sorry state Jeremiah finds himself in. That there is no strength left. There's no more bread in the city. And he's been down in this dungeon full of filth. Is it fatigue? Is it being famished? Is it, is it sickness and disease? Is he, he's feeling pestilence and famine, though not yet sword. But I have no strength to deliver myself. And again, maybe that's why Abedmelech needed 30 other men, that none of them have enough strength. It's going to take all of us to hoist this prophet out of the filth. But they do. And, and he's rescued in this way. Zedekiah then sends for Jeremiah, come. And he says to him in verse 14, I will ask thee a thing. Hide nothing from me as if Jeremiah were tempted to. He never hid anything from anyone. Here it is. Then Jeremiah said unto Zedekiah, If I declare it unto thee, wilt thou not surely put me to death? I seem to be getting closer and closer to that the more I speak. And if I give thee counsel, wilt thou not hearken unto me? You never seem to. So Zedekiah the king swear secretly unto Jeremiah, still too afraid to be seen following a true prophet. Heaven forbid. But he did say, as the Lord liveth, and that's oath language, that made us this soul, I will not put thee to death, neither will I give thee into the hand of these men that seek thy life. So that's better than nothing. Okay, I, I'm not promising that I'll obey your every word, but at least I will live, I'll let you live long enough to give them. I will not destroy you, and I won't let anyone else do it either. So Jeremiah, what's he do? I've got a new lease on life. <laughs> He does everything he's done before. Nothing's changed. You haven't changed. So how on earth could the consequences change? Are you serious? Uh, so here it is. I'll say it all over again since you seem to be so willfully deaf to it all. You either have to surrender to the Babylonians or you will be destroyed. Zedekiah's response, verse 19, But I'm afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they mock me. Seriously? You are so afraid of public opinion that now you'd rather die for it? You'd rather let your people continue to suffer for it? You're afraid that people will mock you? Well, here we are 2,600 years later doing just that. Verse 20, Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver thee. Obey, I beseech thee, the voice of the Lord, which I speak unto thee, so it shall be well unto thee, and thy soul shall live. And that's the only way that that can happen. Obedience to the Lord's commands is always the best advice. Let them mock. At least you'll survive the mockery. You won't survive the conquest of Babylon. But Zedekiah, still more afraid of the people than the consequences of ignoring God, says to Jeremiah in verse 24, let no man know of these words, and thou shalt not die. So I'm giving you a little condition on my promise after the fact. This is just between you and me. But if the princes hear that I have talked with thee, and they come unto thee, and say unto thee, declare unto us now what thou hast said unto the king, hide it not from us, and we will not put thee to death. 
Oh, that, that, wow, I'm putting words in their mouth that are exactly the words that just came out of mine. Oopsie. Uh, if they're no different than I am, uh, if, but if it's me against them, you better be on my side. Okay, Jeremiah. So if they come, here's what I need you to say. Then thou shalt say unto them, I presented my supplication before the king that he would not cause me to return to Jonathan's house to die there. That's it. I was just pleading, begging for my life. Well, there was somebody basically pleading and begging for his life. But it wasn't Jeremiah. It was Zedekiah. So interesting. But I can't look like the weak one, even though he is the weak one. So you go take the fall for me, if they ask. And sure enough, they do. And Jeremiah goes along with it. Okay. Says exactly what the king commanded him to say. And yet the princess still won't leave Jeremiah alone. So verse 28, Jeremiah abode in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken. And he was there when Jerusalem was taken. He lived to see his prophecies fulfilled. Even though he had done everything in his power to see that they wouldn't be fulfilled. This is what Jonah was supposed to do. And if only the people of Jerusalem had been as willing to repent as the people of Nineveh. We'll see all that when we get to the story of Jonah in a, in a, in a few weeks. But to understand what... I mean, you could end right there, and it's an understated ending, but don't you see what he just said? He was there until Jerusalem was taken. So it got taken. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. It's been a long time in coming. It all happened so quickly at the end of 2 Kings. It's like, well, that's the end of the history? Uh-huh. Because let's get on with the prophecy and really see all this, these righteous servants of the Lord trying to avoid that history we just flew through. That's what's worth seeing slowly, is these calls to repent. But you see the history unfold in chapter 39. The fall of Jerusalem, and it is essential history. Verse 1 and 2. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, came Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon. Remember, that's Nebuchadnezzar, as we usually call him. Same name, or same person, different spellings. But he came and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. Did we do our math there? That was a, about a year and a half of siege, all just described lightning style, and very just kind of journalistic, here's what happened. The city was broken up. That's an understated report. After so many close calls, after the eternal city had so many experiences and ups and downs and highs and lows, and it's over. Well, at least over until the remnant returns. The city has fallen. The unthinkable has occurred. In verse 4, it came to pass that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saw them and all the men of war, that they fled and went forth out of the city. By night, there he is, still scared, still secret. By the way of the king's garden, by the gate betwixt the two walls. And he went out into the way of the plain. This is every man for himself. This is not women and children first. This is the captain jumping on the lifeboat and then cutting rope and run. Uh, I'm out of here. But the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. He made it quite a ways. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. And what was that judgment? 
as warned, as prophesied, and as we've already seen in, in, earlier, in earlier chapters describing it. Verse 6, Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. There went the princes. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and break down the walls of Jerusalem. This was absolute devastation. Far worse than anything Jeremiah suffered in the mire. Oh, you put yourself into a world of hurt, Zedekiah. And you, you, the people put themselves there too. And there's, there go the walls. In verse 9 and 10, Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people that remained in the city, and those that fell away that fell to him with the rest of the people that remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor of the people which had nothing in the land of Judah, and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. We just saw the destruction of Jerusalem, and now we have seen the Babylonian exile. The people carried captive back to Babylon. This is actually the second round of that. There was an earlier deportation, and this is the second wave of exiles. Go join your, your comrades there at the rivers of Babylon. See if maybe you can sing the songs of Zion, because they won't, they won't do it. Well, these wouldn't want to either. But all in a matter of a few short verses, Everything's falling apart. And it's even similar to what we saw with the Assyrians that left a few people behind. And that's where the Samaritans come from. Well, here the Babylonians leave a few of the poor. We don't need to worry about them. They won't have the strength to rise up and reclaim their land. Uh, there are no worries. And ironically, Jeremiah will be one that remains behind with them. In verse 11, Now Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzar Adan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look well to him and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. I told you I'd preserve you, Jeremiah, the Lord could say. I'll even do it through your enemies. Now, I can imagine some of the Jews going, Yep, we knew it. We knew Jeremiah was working for the Babylonians. Look at how they're treating him. Well, no, he was working for God, serving him. And look how God is treating him. And no wonder the king of Babylon is being kind to Jeremiah. At least Jeremiah's counsel would have saved everybody a, a world of hurt. Yeah, you should have listened to him. Surrender to us. We would have tre treated you better than what we had to do to conquer. But the conquest is over. The Lord then tells Jeremiah to promise Abedmelech his, his life. It's like while we're uh, taking care of, uh, of accounts, and God is caring for Jeremiah as promised. Now I'm going to care for Abedmelech. He deserves that. It says in verse 17, I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee. In other words, there's predators out there. You'll, the only prey, predator you have to worry about is yourself. Your life will be your own prey. You, you're in charge of it. Because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. I'll let you be in charge of your life because you let me be in charge of your life. Even an outsider who trusted in the God of Israel 
and the servant of that God of Israel. You are a servant of the king after all, Abedmelech, and I'll care for you. As devastating as chapter 39's history is, chapter 40 gives you that glimmer of hope. It's always there. Sheir Yashub, <laughs> Isaiah's son, was evidence of that. Well, here's more evidence of this through Jeremiah. The people of Judah have been taken captive back to Babylon. Jeremiah is freed. He's left behind, as we just saw in chapter 39. And the captain of the Babylonian guard says to Jeremiah in verse 2 of Jeremiah 40, The Lord thy God, he honors him, hath pronounced this evil upon this place. Now the Lord hath brought it, and done according as he hath said, because ye have sinned against the Lord, and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore is this thing come upon you. It's amazing that even a foreigner understands the God of Israel better than the Israelites do. He understands there's consequences to sin. And you guys have been sinning against your God. No wonder your God turned against you. You turned against him first. And so he sent us in your direction and we're cleaning up house for him. He goes on to Jeremiah. Now behold, I loose thee this day from the chains which were upon thine hand. But now you have a choice to make. If it seem good unto thee to come with me into Babylon, come, and I will look well unto thee. In other words, you'll, you'll be in exile, but you won't be a captive exile. Yours will be, oh, you can live with us at the palace, we'll take good care of you. All can be well there. Almost kind of the way uh, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends got to be raised in the palace. So if that sounds appealing to you, then come. Yeah, I'll take good care of you. On the other hand, if it seem ill unto thee to come with me into Babylon, that's okay too, forbear. Behold, all the land is before thee, whither it seemeth good and convenient for thee to go, thither go. So interesting that he would honor the agency of Jeremiah. Whatever sounds better to you, go for it. And Jeremiah chose, in some ways, the harder of the two. There's nothing left in Jerusalem. Walls have been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. The only people left here are the poor. Do I want to be poor here among them? Or live like a king among the Babylonians? Hmm, never mind. I'm not even going to think about that. And so he decides to stay. Babylon does have an interesting way of trying to coax you to come home with them. Oh, and promises of ease and luxury and protection and honor and power and prestige and privilege and you name it. Jeremiah saw through it all, and he stayed. A second element to this part of the story, the Babylonians, since Zedekiah is gone, and he was their first kind of choice of, as puppet, puppet king, well, we've got to replace him with another puppet. And so they pick up a guy named Gedaliah, and Gedaliah is now the new governor, not king anymore. You're not your own kingdom. You're now a kind of a vassal state in the Babylonian empire. But you can have your own governor. And he installs Gedaliah. So now you have Jeremiah and Gedaliah. And how are they going to do together? Well, verse 9, Gedaliah tells the people, Fear not to serve the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Dwell in the land, stay here, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, behold, I will dwell at Mizpah to serve the Chaldeans, which will come unto us. But ye, gather ye wine and summer fruits and oil, put them in your vessels, dwell in your cities that ye have taken. Now, if any of that sounds strangely familiar, it's basically exactly what Jeremiah had been saying all this time. Just be good citizens, pray for the peace of Babylon, and things will be okay for us here. 
Thanks, Jeremiah. So these two seem to be getting along just fine. But unfortunately, it does seem a little too little, too late for the vast number of the population. Meanwhile, verse 11 and 12, Likewise, when all the Jews that were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and that were in all the countries, so all, picture kind of a mini scattering. They're in surrounding nations, probably ho hoping to hunker down and like, man, Judah always gets beat up. Israel's already been scattered. Judah's going to be uh, taken captive. Maybe we can hide out among some, some foreign nations. But they hear what's happened. And these people from all over, outside of Israel, Moab, Ammon, Edom, all the countries, when they heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah, hmm, there's some Sheir Yashus back there. there, there are still some people, and that he had set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, like, ooh, he's a way better guy than Zedekiah was. Hmm, there's people left. They've got... A good, they've got good leadership. Hmm. Even all the Jews returned out of all places whither they were driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah unto Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruits very much. I love that detail. It's a little mini gathering, so you have a little bigger remnant remaining. And what was it that coaxed them out of the shadows? The promise of preservation? the realization that they weren't alone after all, righteous leadership. I feel the same can happen in our days of spiritual scattering. If people simply knew you're not alone, there are other people who believe, who want to live righteous lives, that just want to be good to one another and good to God, come. Look at the righteousness of our leaders and the righteousness of the people, and just gather, and they do. Chapter 40 then ends on a sad note for Gedaliah, and for the people, since he would have been a better leader for them than what they ended up with. Uh, one of his men comes and tells King Geda or Governor Gedaliah about a plot against his life. We're hearing rumors, and you're not safe. But unfortunately, Gedaliah doesn't believe those reports. Uh, he, he trusted Jeremiah, which was a good thing, but he, he just kind of trusted everybody, which was not always a good thing. So even when one of his, one of his own right-hand men warned him about something, he didn't take any precautions, and sure enough, they didn't prepare for anything, and he was assassinated. He was a man with some degree of spiritual smarts, but not much on the way of, or by the way of street smarts. And it cost him his life. And that story is told in chapter 41. Some just basic history. It tells the story of Gedaliah's assassination at the hands of a man named Ishmael. Ishmael slays Gedaliah and his men. He slays the people. Coming. There were other people coming down from the north to gather in Jerusalem. These are good news. Let's all come down in. But Ishmael kills them as well. He takes captive a bunch of women and children and people from the governor's house and heads back to the land of the Ammonites. That's where he's from, foreign territory. But Yohanan, who was Gedaliah's right-hand man, who had warned him about this from the very start, he goes after Ishmael and ends up freeing the captives. But he's not able to defeat Ishmael personally, and Ishmael's able to escape back to the Ammonites themselves. Uh, not super important history, as far as I can tell. I mean, if you can find deeper meaning in it, be my guest. Uh, but then Yohanan and the returning captives come back to Jerusalem. They're afraid to stay there because... 
uh, the, Babylon, the, the governor that the Babylonians installed, we mm, didn't hold on to him long. And since there were people that attacked the Babylonian guy, that probably is going to come across as an attack on Babylon itself. And so we're really worried that he's going to send another army back and, and destroy all of us. So now they have another decision to make. And you see that decision in chapter 42. In chapter 42, Yohanan and the people in Jerusalem go to Jeremiah, good choice so far, and they say in verse 2 and 3, Let we beseech thee our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant. I love that they call themselves that. We are the remnant. But we need to know what God wants to do with us. We're kind of nervous based on what's been happening politically. And will you please go and ask God what we ought to do? They say, for we are left, but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us. There's not many of us, so what should we do? That the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk and the thing that we may do. I love that they're asking God's prophet, what should a righteous remnant do? Well, remnant is definite. Righteous is still a question mark. Okay, We're going to see this unfold in just a moment. But I do love their, their desire. I want God to speak to us through a prophet and give us direction on where we must walk and what we must do. Do we approach the prophets with that hope? Do we attend general conference with that in mind? Please give me my marching orders. How would you like me to overcome the world? That's what we just heard from our prophet, right? Are we going to do it? Or are we going to let Babylon bear down on us? Or as we're about to say, will we flee from one part of the wicked world just to another part of the wicked world, which is, doesn't solve the problem? We need to overcome the whole thing. So look at verse 4. Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words. And it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. That's what prophets do. They tell us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear, and they don't hold back. So verse 5 and 6, Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all things for the which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we send thee, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. That is a beautiful promise. If only they followed through with it. If only they'd been like the Rechabites. That, that's our oath, and we're going to stick with it for centuries to come. But if we could internalize and, and mean that, you know what? I don't even care how it turns out, God, whether it turns out to be good or whether it turns out to be not so good. We are going to obey your voice, come what may. Well, it takes 10 days for Jeremiah to finally get an answer, which suggests we might have to be patient and wait for prophets to receive the word of the Lord. It's, it's up to God, after all, not up to the prophet and certainly not up to us. But they patiently wait, and 10 days in, the word finally comes to Jeremiah. In verse 10 through 12, here it is. If ye will still abide in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down and I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. Wait, God repenting? No, of course not. Joseph Smith translation. I will turn away the evil that I have done unto you. 
it was all it was conditional after all, right? So there's my advice. We saw that back in chapter one. We saw it again early on at, in this week's material. I'm clearing soil. I'm plowing wayside. I'm gathering out rocks. I'm weeding thorns. I want good ground so that things can grow. And here you are, stay here and stay planted. He goes on, be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. I know you're scared, but don't be. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you, to deliver you from his hand. I mean, you're still alive. You're still here. And I will show mercies unto you, that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your own land. So here's my advice. Stay in Zion and trust in the Lord. Don't leave just because numbers are dwindling and, and there's some of, we're up against some difficult odds and we're afraid of the world around us. Sound a little like Elder Holland's call to stay in the good ship Zion. Sound like Elder Uchtdorf's call to, to, to just stay. <laughs> Stay and serve and stay and lift and stay and bless and stay, stay and invite and just stay. There's no place quite like Zion if we're willing to turn it into Zion. There, there's so much relevance and application in this part of the story. If you've ever felt like a remnant, and why are my friends leaving the church? What do they know that I don't know? Or what is happening into a, in an increasingly secular world where people are leaving religion behind? Don't be afraid. Stay in Zion. God is with us. In verse 13 and 14, then they get the alternative. But if ye say, we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. Ooh, that's your other choice? The temptation to place your trust in the arm of flesh? To seek shelter in one, from one part of the world by retreating into another? Sounds like what was happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. I thought I found joy in in this, and that was hollow. So I tried that, and that was lame, and this and that, and vanity of vanities. You're going to try to escape Babylon by going to Egypt? That's like fleeing Sodom to seek shelter in Gomorrah. It doesn't work. They're both going up in smoke. Egypt always seemed to be, but I mean, that's where Joseph went and his brothers, and that's that's the, that's the breadbasket of the ancient world. Well, they're gonna, about to go hungry too because they are going to fall to the Babylonian Empire just like you just did. So you might want to stick with a better ally, namely the God of Israel. In verse 15, if ye wholly set your faces to, to enter into Egypt and go to sojourn there, then it shall come to pass that the sword which ye feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine, whereof you were afraid, shall follow close after you there in Egypt. And there you shall die. <laughs> the same, it's not about geography. It's about spirituality. It's not retreat. It's repentance. And so trust in God, not in Egypt. Where you live doesn't matter. It's with whom you live and how you live that will make the difference. So Jeremiah reiterates all the things that he's been trying to tell them all along. 
uh, don't escape. You'll still be, all the things you're trying to flee from here are, will still be there in Egypt. I got that sense when I taught seminary in a part of Utah that lots and lots of people were leave, fleeing Babylon and settling in. They were, I, I hope I can get away with this since I am a Californian. They were leaving California. <laughs> and it's a hard place to raise your kids, uh, and, and there's just too many bad influences. And I'm going to move to Utah, where there's only good influences. I hope they weren't that naive when they, when they left. Because everything negative you find in California, yeah, you can find in Utah, or anywhere else, if you look. And if your kids are struggling, remember, that's what the, the new covenant's all about. Put it internally. It's not about changing external environment. It's about changing the human heart. And that can be done even in California. It can be done anywhere. And for the Lord to say to this remnant, stay where you are and make a difference right here. Because if you're trying to escape things, that's actually best done internally, not externally. The answer isn't in Egypt. So he makes it crystal clear in verse 19. The Lord hath said concerning you, O ye remnant of Judah, go ye not into Egypt. Can I make that any clearer? Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. So I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to say that I said it. I'm, here's the advice. I just gave you the advice. Uh, see previous sentence. Are we good here? God is trying. This is a hard-hearted people. Eyes that won't see and ears that won't hear and hearts that won't understand. So let me try to spell it out for you. And why so crystal clear? Look at 20 and 21. For ye dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us unto the Lord our God. And according to all that the Lord our God shall say, so declare unto us and we will do it. Oh yeah, those were great words. Wonderful lip service. Well, are you going to do it? Because now I have this day declared it unto you. But ye have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything for the which he hath sent me unto you. Because I know what you're like. You were asking a prophet to rubber stamp what you'd already decided to do. You, you were already packing your bags for Egypt when you made a little token request of, of Jeremiah. Hey, will you ask God if, if, what we should do? Because we'll definitely do anything he says, as long as what he says is what we want him to We've seen that problem over and over through Old Testament history. No, the prophets need to be independent of us and dependent on God and let us know and not hold anything back. And that's been Jeremiah this whole time. Unfortunately, sure enough, sorry, bags are packed. You didn't tell us what we wanted to hear, so I'm not going to hear it. And as you shift to chapter 43, guess where Israel is headed? South. We're going to Egypt. Verse 2 and 3, Then spake Azariah the son of Hoshea, and Yohanan the son of Kareah, and all the proud men, not humble enough to accept the Lord's will through his prophet, the proud men said unto Jeremiah, Ah, thou speakest falsely. The Lord our God hath not sent thee to say, Go not into Egypt to sojourn there. But Baruch the son of Neriah setteth thee on against us, for to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they might put us to death and carry us away captives into Babylon. Oh, your message couldn't possibly be from God since it doesn't agree with what we had already determined. So you must have gotten those words from somebody else. You really are a Babylonian in disguise. 
and we will not fall prey to your false prophecies. Okay. Don't say I didn't tell you. And the leaders of the people take all this remnant in Jerusalem down to Egypt. And sadly, ironically, they take Jeremiah too. You'd think that, that we don't want to listen to him anyway. We, then leave him. Let him do his thing and you do yours. No, we're all in this thing together. And for some reason, we still want a prophet in our midst, even though we don't want him to act like a prophet. So they drag Jeremiah out, kicking and screaming, I'm sure. Actually, he's not much of a kicker and screamer anymore. He's just a lamenter, but he's a submitter. And I know God will deliver me, so come what may. And he goes down to Egypt with them. Now, once they arrive, the Lord tells Jeremiah to teach another object lesson. Okay, well, I can teach them here in Egypt as well as anywhere else. And in verse 9 and 10, here it is. Take great stones in thine hand and hide them in the clay in the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house in Toppenes. In the sight of the men of Judah, I want everybody to see, I mean, for it to be a visual aid, it needs to be visual. So let everybody see it. And then explain what you did. Say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Remember him, the guy that you think you're fleeing from? And I will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. Hiding stones? Just like you think you're hiding out in Egypt? Oh, safe from the consequences of your poor choices. No. There is no hiding place far enough or deep enough or hidden enough that your sins will not find you out. This is the ultimate example, the ultimate visual aid for you can run, but you can't hide. No, Nebuchadnezzar will come. Babylon, its reach will extend even over the realm of Egypt. And that's the bad news. But there's also good news. It's not Nebuchadnezzar alone that has a royal pavilion that he wants to spread over you. The God of Israel also has a redeeming reach from which you cannot hide. As long as you want to be found. That if you'll turn to him, then his pavilion will reach to you. It will cover you. He will embrace you in the arms of safety, the arms of his redeeming love. He is spreading out his wings to gather you home. So please just come. The answers do not lie in Egypt. They lie in Israel with Israel's God. Jeremiah will take that group those, that tiny little remnant, not yet righteous, but that tiny remnant in Egypt, and from there hope to take some leaven and leaven the lump. Another Jeremiah emerges in our next chapter, Jeremiah 44. And as he raises this voice of warning, it's to this small remnant of Jews living in Egypt. And he lets them know, God has destroyed Judah and Jerusalem because of covenant infidelity. Everything I warned them about in the first half of my book. It's on them, not on God. But God, in his mercy, continues to send prophets to cry repentance, to warn them about the consequences of their sins. They rejected those warnings, and 
paid the ultimate price. That's why they're now either dead or in Babylon. And that's why you are either dead or in Egypt. What do you say we live and return to Israel and become true Israelites? You know this, Jeremiah says. So why would you reject the prophets? Why would you come here? Why would you worship false gods here in Egypt? It's, you keep falling in the wrong direction. So he says in verse 7, Wherefore commit ye this great evil against your souls? It's only yourselves that you're hurting. To cut off from you man and woman, child and suckling out of Judah, to leave you none to remain. Are you trying to eliminate even this last remaining remnant? Because you're all we've got left. We've got to change things. We've got to turn things around. He says in verse 9 and 10, Have ye forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, and the wickedness of the kings of Judah, and the wickedness of their wives, and your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives? There's a lot of wickedness here to remember. Which they have committed in the land of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem. They are not humbled, even unto this day. Neither have they feared, nor walked in my law, nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Talk about spiritual amnesia. This is what Nephi was getting after Laman and Lemuel for. How could you not remember? We just saw an angel. How could you forget all we've been through and all that God has done? You think of all people, these, this little group in Egypt. You're like the survivors, the lone holdouts, but you're not holding out anymore. What will become of us? So again, Jeremiah warns them that they will be destroyed in Egypt just like the unrepentant ev everywhere else, whether it's the Assyrians after us, the Babylonians after. Now it's going to be the Egyptians after us. It doesn't matter. We have to turn to God. And they say to Jeremiah in verse 16 and 17, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then had we plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. Whew, these people are, they're a piece of work. They are completely unrepentant. They're not even paying lip service anymore. It's like, nope. You're trying to be crystal clear with us, Jeremiah. Allow us to be equally clear in return. We're not going to do what you say. We're not going to follow God. In fact, we're going to follow... Yeah, that's what we're going to do. It seemed like there were days back throughout our history that when we were worshiping so-called false gods, I mean, Baal seemed to bring rain. Don't remind me about the years of Elijah's ministry. Uh, Asherah seemed to be a good queen of heaven, and she provided for us. We had plenty of vittles. Sound like the original Exodus? Leaving Egypt the first time with this, oh, but they had leeks and onions and oh, the cucumbers. Really? Yes, you ate freely, but you weren't free. Think this through, people. But here the people are doing, they're falling in the same old trap. Verse 18, but since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven, when we, quote-unquote, repented, when we stopped pouring out drink offerings unto her. We have wanted all things. We've been in total lack and despondency and devastation. We have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. Now, this is really interesting. It's as if someone in our day were saying, but back when I was not living the gospel, things were easier. 
I had a better job or I made more money and I certainly didn't have to pay 10% of it to, to some church. Uh, and I had friends and I was popular and yeah, living the gospel is, has been the cause of my problems, not, not the source of my help. And that's what the people are feeling here. I sometimes, to me it's interesting to watch economic cycles and presidential cycles because economics often take a while and, and the, to, to, to manifest consequence. And often it's the policies of one administration, and it works both ways, whether right or left or blue or red, but the policies of one administration, they'll, they'll blame problems on their predecessor and then claim everything good themselves. But then often the things that they are doing end up causing problems later on, and then the next predecessor does the same thing and blames, or excuse me, the successor blames the predecessor, and on and on and on. We have to trust that God does know best, and we accept his word and keep his commandments, and the inner feeling of confirmation that we're doing the will of God will bring a peace of conscience, uh, a steadiness and a security, a happiness and peace and rest, those things Abraham was looking for, that far surpasses anything the world has to offer. And then it's come what may. I know that ultimately all will be well. The blessings will come. And if I go through some difficult days, like Job did, no need to shake my fist at heaven. I know that all will ultimately be well. But that's not the mentality of these people. No, we, we planted seeds. You call them wicked. Well, they don't know that these are slow growth. But the consequences have now come. Well, because of their continued wickedness in Egypt, the Jews that are there will likewise be destroyed. Which now sounds like, well, but that was the Sheir Yashub. That was the remnant. They weren't the righteous remnant, but at least some survivors were there. But notice verse 28. Despite all of that, the Lord says, Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose words shall stand, mine or theirs. That's an interesting one. Okay, fine. Time will tell. We'll see. Proof's in the pudding. And eventually, you'll know that I was telling the truth all along. How's that for making you wait and see what seeds, what kind of plants grow from the seeds that are planted? But I do love this thought that, okay, I had a, a small number. When Israel, we had the kingdom of Israel. I was trying to make a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a peculiar people to call my own. Then they split, and the northern kingdom really went downhill fast. And so they were scattered. But a remnant remained in Judah. Thank you, Isaiah. Thank you, Hezekiah. Well, then they started going to pot. And so what happens next? They're carried captive into Babylon, but we still have a remnant that remains. Uh-oh, now they're being drawn down to Egypt. Well, eh, even those that are destroyed, they'll still be... You, you get a sense that the remnant is shrinking? It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. When... Nephi had his visions of the last days. He said it would be like that, that things would get smaller, that when all was said and done, it would be small pockets of righteousness. They would be few upon the land, but they would be mighty. They would have the power of God and great glory resting upon them. That seems to be the world that we're headed toward. But this small number will remain, will return 
there will always yet be a remnant. I just want to be a part of it. I want to be the leaven that ultimately leavens the lump. Not the kind that, the, not the people that are just whittled away little by little. Jeremiah 45 then follows with another flashback. We're going back to earlier times, back to the reign of Jehoiakim. And in this moment, during this flashback, Baruch is shocked. He's sorrowful. Remember, he's Jeremiah's scribe. And he's blown away by the destruction that the people are facing. It hasn't happened yet in this flashback. So the Lord says to him, through the prophet Jeremiah, this is verse 4 and 5, Behold, that which I have built will I break down, and that which I have planted I will pluck up, even this whole land. And seekest thou great things for thyself? <laughs> Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. So Baruch here basically gets the same promise God had made to Abedmelech, that Ethiopian eunuch. Your life will be your own. You can do with it as you please. I'll preserve you because you've trusted in me. It's, that's the same promise, essentially, that he made to Jeremiah. Yeah, I'll deliver you, and you'll need the deliverance. And that's the sense you get here for, for Baruch. You'll need the deliverance because you're going, you're going to go through some rough times. Uh, you are living in the last days of Judah, after all. What did you expect it would be like? That you're out, up, up there seeking great things for thyself? Like, I'll, I'll be safe here in the palace. Everything will be fine. Yeah, there's collateral damage. There's a community of suffering. But you'll be delivered. That's the difference. I think we need to prepare ourselves for that somewhat. Uh, not just to think, well, I'll be righteous, and so I'll, I'll be untouched by any of the consequences of living in the last days. That's a little naive on our part. Yes, we will be preserved. Yes, we will be delivered. Yes, we'll be protected. But as President Hinckley said in his first talk after the 9-11 attacks, even the righteous may be called upon to suffer. We're living through the last days, people. What did we expect? Yes, Adam on Diamond lies ahead, but so does Armageddon, to reverse a phrase that Elder Maxwell gave us. We need to be prepared for both. Even in the plagues of Egypt, for a long time the Israelites were spared from them. Uh, and ultimately the worst ones they were spared from as well, as long as they followed Moses' counsel with the Passover. But there are some consequences globally that there's no avoiding because we're here on the globe with everyone else. Okay? So I think there's a, just an interesting lesson nestled into chapter 45 there uh, that God wants us to trust in Him even when things get rough and seek great things from Him, not great things for ourselves. Don't think... We're living the gospel against the backdrop of the last days. So take your vitamins, as President Nelson said. Gear up for a fight. Chapter 46 describes a bit of this fight, but this time it's Babylon against Egypt. Well, it's fitting. I warned you that those two aren't going to get along, and so don't side on either of their sides. Stay out of the mix and be with God. So Jeremiah raises a warning voice against Egypt this time. You're not going to be able to stand against the Babylonians once they come. He ends up giving them a great call to war. Unfortunately, it's a promise of defeat, not of victory. 
He says in 10 and 11, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. Now, if this was, we're just talking against the Egyptians or against the Babylonians, then fine. But eh, it's not only them. For the Lord of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up into Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. There is no hope for the Egyptians. They'll be defeated by the Babylonians just like everybody else. And if there is no hope for the Egyptians, then shame on you, people of Judah, for putting your trust and hope in Egypt. There's no hope for you in, in that either. In verse 20, the Lord says, Egypt is like a very fair heifer. She's a strong ox, a strong bull, a strong animal, but destruction cometh. It cometh out of the north, which is where Babylon will come from. Yeah, you might feel strong. This is like the seven years of plenty. Yeah, the strong, the strong oxen. But they're going to get devoured. And in this case, this is a, this is a, a heifer destined for the, the butcher. But God also has better news for his people. Bad news for the Egyptians, some good news for his people, if they'll just repent, if they'll start acting like his people. 27 and 28, he says, But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save thee from afar off. You've, been, you've run, but, you've not, but you can't hide from my redemption, if you'll just turn to me. Thy seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. So fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. For I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. That's almost an exact echo of what he had said earlier. And again, it shows God trying to find that Goldilocks zone between justice and mercy because both sides are meant to redeem us. God's justice is meant to bless us as much as his mercy is. Those, that's the bumper on the bumper bowling, okay, trying to help us stay in the straight and narrow path. And so you can sense him going back and forth. Oh, careful, Egypt's about to be destroyed. But there'll be a remnant. But you'll be punished. But in measure... But I can't leave you totally unpunished it's just, uh, 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 and just trying to get us in. I'm walking a tightrope here, trying to give you hope, but also warning you against the consequences of sin. Every prophet has a really hard time, or I should say has a really hard task to do that. But that's what they're aiming for. And then for the next several chapters, Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations, begins speaking to the nations. I've been <laughs> focusing on Judah. It hasn't gone so well. They won't listen. But since I am God's prophet, and prophets have burdens for surrounding nations, let me unload these burdens on you. Chapter 47, he speaks first to the Philistines. Well, actually, 46, he just spoke to the Egyptians, warned them. Now 47, let's warn the Philistines. He says in verse 5 through 7, Baldness is come upon Gaza, one of the chief cities of the Philistines. Ashkelon, which is another one, is cut off with the remnant of their valley. 
So I ask you, Philistines, how long wilt thou cut thyself? This self-harm, this, these self-inflicted wounds caused by your own wickedness. O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. But how can it be quiet, seeing the Lord hath given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore where the Philistines dwelt? There hath he appointed it. The Philistines have been as wicked as anyone else. And so I can't preserve them from the Babylonians. And they will fall. Sure enough, they did. Chapter 48, next. What about the Moabites? Any hope for them? This is, I mean, the Philistines were just kind of anti-Israel from the beginning. There's David and Goliath, right? Uh, or Samson and his enemies. But here, Moab, they're descendants of, of Lot and his daughters. Okay, that's some tricky family history. Uh, but there still is some kind of covenant connection, sort of. I mean, Lot and Abraham were connected. So what about for them? That was next on Jeremiah's list because they were next on the Lord's and it's next on Babylon's as well. So Jeremiah warns them of the destruction that awaits them for their wickedness, which unfortunately was very similar to Israel's wickedness. So of course, similar fate. Verse 7, For because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures... Sound like what Israel had been doing for, to themselves? Like, oh, we got this. We're strong enough. We can handle it. There's your pride. Because of that, he warns the Moabites, thou shalt also be taken. And Chemish shall go forth into captivity with his priests and his princes together. False God, false priests, priests, false, pro false promises, false assurances. You've all got your faith in the wrong things. So you're going to fall. Verse 11, Moab hath been at ease from his youth. He hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. Interesting metaphor there. What he's talking about is wine. And you gather the grapes, and you tread them out, and put the, the grape juice into these vessels, and then let it all ferment. Now, the, I've seen some scholars say this is a good thing. Others say it's a bad thing as far as moving it from vessel to vessel, which is what he's describing here. He's saying to the people of Moab, you haven't been emptied from vessel to vessel. Now, from a wine production perspective, and I don't have any idea about this from personal experience. Okay? I'm a fan of the word of wisdom. Uh, but from what I understand from reading the scholarship on this verse, that some say that... If you just leave the wine in its original vessel, then it can become bitter after time. And so it should be poured out into something new so it can kind of start, start fresh. I don't, I don't know. I don't get, get all this myself. Because other scholars have pushed back and said, no, no, no. If you leave it in its original vessel, then all of the sediment, this is wine on the lees, well refined. All the sediment, settle, the sediment excuse me, can add to the flavor of the wine. Okay, so maybe there's some good things about sticking around. Maybe there's some bad things about sticking around. Maybe there's some good about being poured out, but also some bad about being poured out. Eh, no wonder both scholars can't agree with each other, because I think both have legs to stand on. Isn't it true that there's positives and negatives of staying or moving? In Moab's case, you've been allowed to kind of stay still, kind of under the radar uh, people don't tend to go down that direction. They come closer to the Mediterranean. And so no wonder it's Judah and Israel that always get smacked up by the competing superpowers. No, Moab, you've been at ease. 
you've settled on your lees. You haven't been scattered, poured out to other nations and other areas, into other vessels. But how have you turned out? Not so good. This is one of those lulled into a false sense of security. This is one of those, uh, we are at ease in Zion. And hey, Zion prospereth. Yea, all is well. All is well. Be careful. Because Moab, you're about to be poured out for the first time. In verse 29, he says, We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceeding proud. His loftiness, his arrogancy, and his pride, and the haughtiness of his heart. So take your complacency, couple it with your pride, and that is a, a dangerous combination. Not a good recipe to follow. And unfortunately, Israel and Judah follow that recipe all the time. And look where it took them. Verse 43 and 44, Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon thee, O inhabitant of Moab, saith the Lord. He that fleeth from the fear, I got away from it, careful, shall fall into the pit. But he that getteth out of the pit, I made it, careful, shall be taken in the snare. Is there no escape? No, that's what I've been trying to say to the people in Egypt. I'm saying it now to the people in Moab. There's no escaping unless you repent. He says, for I will bring upon it, even upon Moab, the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. Fleeing one danger, <laughs> to fall into another, is exactly what Judah just did. They fled from the Babylonians and fell into the Egyptians, and now you can run, but you can't hide. Same for you, Moabites. Verse 47, yet will I bring again the captivity of Moab in the latter days, saith the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. Now, I know I've read Jeremiah a bunch of times, but this time around, I did a double take with that verse. I guess in the past, I've always been like, oh, Moabites, they're not Israelites, and so moving on to the next chapter. There's nothing to see here. But the end there is wild. Hold on to it. He's, all we've ever talked about in the Old Testament has been the scattering of Israel. Right? The captivity of Judah. It's God's covenant people that are being scattered abroad because of their wickedness. But God cares about his covenant people. And so he's going to bring his covenant people back home and back into the covenant. What on earth are you doing talking about Moab like that? If I were to rephrase verse 47 and say, Yet I will bring again the captivity of Israel in the latter days, we wouldn't bat an eye because we, that's what he's been saying for, for centuries. But the Moabites will be scattered and gathered as well. What does that tell you about God and how he feels about his children? Not his, just his children within the covenant, but his children outside of it. I love this. I love that we have a God who chooses exclusivity as far as the covenant people is concerned only in order to take that exclusivity and turn it on its head, turn it outside itself, so that it seeks a radical inclusivity of all of God's children. That's what gathering Israel on both sides of the veil is all about. Gather the people, gather Ephraim, for example, birthright tribe. But why? So that Ephraim and Manasseh together can make sure the rest of the family comes home. That's the responsibility of the birthright. But even then, after all the family comes home, what's Israel's then job? Gathered Israel's job is to go gather non-Israel. And we go from Jew to Gentile. You understand? This is the history of, of religion, of Judeo-Christianity. This is the history or the prophecy of the last days for us. It's amazing that 
I, seriously, I'm blown away by this. I want to make, there's some Moabite Easter eggs out there that I've hidden. And I remember where all of they are, where all of them are too. It's powerful. Then 49, he shifts to the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Syrians and the Kedarites and the Elamites. You're like, who are these? I never even heard of them. Well, God knows. God knows exactly who they are. And so his prophet in Judah, Jeremiah, will cry repentance and warn them as well. All in the same chapter. So, I mean, it's, we're getting near the end of his book. We've got to pack it all in, right? So, verse 4 through 6. Wherefore gloriest thou in the valleys, thy flowing valley, O backsliding daughter? Now, he's talking to the Ammonites here. So, he calls them a backsliding daughter. I, I understand the backsliding, right? They've been wicked too. But daughter? Wow. You're going to claim them as part of the family? Well, yeah. They descended from Lot and his daughters just like the Moabites did. So, yeah, it's connected to Abraham. You're, you're all my people. So beware, you backsliding daughter, that trusted in her treasures. That seems to be a common problem. Saying, who shall come unto me? I'll tell you who's going to come unto you. I will bring a fear upon thee, saith the Lord God of hosts, from all those that be about thee. And ye shall be driven out every man right forth, and none shall gather up him that wandereth. But then this, and afterward I will bring again the captivity of the children of Ammon saith the Lord. Oh, just in case we missed it in the previous chapter, here it is again. I scatter Moabites and will gather Moabites. I scatter Ammonites and will gather Ammonites. God loves all his children and will gather them all home. All Catholics, all Protestants, all Christians, non-Christians, Jews, Gentiles, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Atheists, agnostics, skeptics, he has an eye on everyone because he loves us all. I, I love this in Jeremiah. He, Jeremiah then goes on and he warns the Edomites. These are now no longer children of Lot, but children of Esau. Ooh, we're going to look even closer to the family. We, a connection to Abraham, now we're connected to Jacob. So here's Esau as opposed to Jacob. But the Lord promises them, in verse 16, Thy terribleness hath deceived thee, and the pride of thine heart. Those things tricked you into thinking you could escape the general devastation. Well, you can't. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, though thou shouldest make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. The proud will be humbled no matter what nationality you happen to be a part of. But notice also when he talks about your dwelling in the clefts of the rocks, where was, did the Lord intend to send his hunters? To the mountains and the hills and the clefts of, or the caves, the holes, he calls it, the holes of the rocks. He'll find some, some Edomites there and coax them back to Christ. Jeremiah then goes to the next. He's going, taking down the list. And he turns to the people of Damascus, the Syrians. And he says in verse 24 through 26, Damascus, the capital there, is waxed feeble, and turneth herself to flee. And fear hath seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How is the city of praise not left? The city of my joy. Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, wait a minute, God of Israel. 
Are you getting confused up there? Uh, I th- you must be, because you, just, you mentioned the city of your joy, and it sounded like you were talking about Damascus. But that's a Syrian city. That's not, that's not Jerusalem. Are you, are you d- cheating on us, God? God would say, oh, no, 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 no. That's what you've done, backsliding daughter. But I have people in Damascus that I care about. In fact, Damascus itself, yes, it's a city of my joy. So is Nineveh, for that matter, the capital of the Assyrians. And I'll send Jonah to help them. I even care about the people, you'll be surprised by this, they're in Babylon. And I'll, I'll free the, the suffering Babylonians from their own overlords when I send Cyrus the Great and the Persians to free them. The Babylons will be grateful for their own defeat, ironically. The people will, at least. And they will hail Cyrus as a deliverer. Makes Cyrus a good type of Christ. But the idea here that I find so compelling is, what would you Latter-day Saints say is the city of God's joy? I hope Salt Lake City comes to mind, as you think of Temple Square and the Temple and home of the prophets and apostles. But I also hope you think... Oh, I think Nashville. Nashville was a city of my joy. I loved my time there. But it's also called the Protestant Vatican, headquarters of of many a Protestant church. In fact, speaking of the real Vatican, would that be considered a city of God's joy? You better believe it. What about Mecca and Medina? Yeah. What about Istanbul? What about Shanghai or Cairo? Tokyo? Kuala Lumpur, take your pick. God has children that he loves in every city on the earth, and they're all potentially, not even potentially, they are all cities of his joy. And he wants to find joy and rejoicing in each one of them. No wonder he sends us across the earth to every city that, he, that will allow us in so that we can increase the joy of that city and the joy God has in it. I love being a part of the gathering of Israel. I love sharing the gospel. I love visiting places I've never been and churches I've never attended and sensing God's joy there among people that he loves. When I read Jeremiah 48 and 49, especially that last phrase where he (laughs) praises Damascus, I have a sense that God is not as tribalistic as he sometimes has been accused of being. I hope that means that his people aren't as tribalistic as we have sometimes been accused of being. We need to find joy in other people's gardens as well, knowing that God rejoices in their gifts. By the end of the chapter, he then adds a few more warnings to a few other places that never seem to get on our map or our radar. He warns the Kedarites, which are this nomadic tribe off in the deserts of Arabia. And he lets them know, even out there, the part that the Fertile Crescent tends to avoid, you're not even safe. And if the Babylonians can wipe out the people hiding behind city walls, they can definitely wipe out people hiding behind tent flaps. So be careful. Prepare yourselves. He then shifts his attention to the Elamites, which is another tribe. And he says in verse 37 and then 39, 
For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life. And I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord. And I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them. But then, what you hopefully are expecting by now, but it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. Not, not just the captivity of Israel, like we were expecting. Not just the captivity of Judah, like we were expecting. Even the captivity of Elam. Because the Lord loves them all. If there's, I do have a hope that chapter 38, or excuse me, 48 and 49 of Jeremiah change our perspective on so-called outsiders. They're not outside the, the reach of God. So-called non-members, they're still members of God's family. And ultimately, our job in gathering Israel is to make sure that not a single child of God who's ever lived remains ungathered by his love. We then see the last three chapters of Jeremiah as it all kind of comes crashing to its close. Don't, don't prepare, your, prepare yourself for a, a decrescendo and an and, and ending in a minor key, not a major one. These last three chapters, 50 and 51, well, we've been zeroing in. We've been warning Egypt and we've been warning Edom and Moab and Ammon and Kedar and, and Elam. Against the destruction by the Babylonians, well, guess what? I even care about the Babylonians. I know that sounds shocking. And so I have some words of warning for them as well. Just like Isaiah had warned Assyria about itself, Jeremiah will warn Babylon about itself as well. First, he warns Babylon that it too will eventually be destroyed. Persians are on their way. He then shifts back to Judah and Israel for a moment, verse 4 and 5. In those days, last days, in that time, last times, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. Here's the gathering. They and the children of Judah together, the families coming back together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. Finally, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. This is the best news I've heard in like 50 chapters. Or at least maybe 15 or 20. They're going to come? This sounds like what we saw earlier about, wait, the woman, the wife, the bride is going to propose to the husband? Nice. Scattered Israel is going to try to find itself and find its way back home? They're going to come to their senses and miss all of this? They're going to ask the way. This must be the women of Israel and Judah, since men never ask for directions, right? Here they are. Asking the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. I'm looking. I just want to come home. Does anyone know the way? Uh, I love this. And when you start meeting the truly elect that are asking you the golden questions instead of you asking them, does anyone know where I can find happiness, peace, and rest? Wait, what? So glad you asked. Does anyone know why there's no prophets these days when they always they seem more needed now than ever? Wait, why did you just ask? I, I know where they are. Uh, there's something powerful about this promise. And the fact that it's both north and south, both Israel and Judah, coming together 
seeking Zion because they want to enter into a perpetual covenant? Ooh, sounds like the new approach is working. The inward rather than the outward. Oh, new and everlasting covenant, never to be forgotten. Verse 6, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. We've seen Isaiah worry about that. Jeremiah worry about that. Next week we'll see Ezekiel worry about that. It's your own leaders that are leading you in the wrong direction. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. And that's the wrong direction. They have forgotten their resting place, which is at the peak of the mountain of the Lord. Beware of false shepherds that are leading you downhill, who are promising you ease as long as you'll descend to lower levels of living. No, it's up to the mountain of the Lord. Jeremiah then goes back to prophesying of Babylon's destruction. The, bad, the good news for the, the, good pe the people that will be good. Bad news if you choose to remain bad. In Babylon, that seems to be you in this instance. Verse 13 and 14, Because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goeth by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at all her plagues. This is starting to sound a little like Isaiah 14. Remember that? Oh, how thou hast fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning. It's the king of Babylon he's talking about. But your, your descent, your fall is as meteoric as the, the fall of Lucifer in the war in heaven. I mean, you were a wonder of the ancient world. You were the one everyone feared. And now you can't even be found? Oh, put yourselves in array against Babylon, round about. All ye that bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows. For she hath sinned against the Lord. And there is that swift downfall of the wicked world. Verse 17 and 18. Israel, meanwhile, is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the kings of Assyria hath devoured him. There's losing the, or being lost to the northern tribes. And last, this Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. That's where the southern kingdom is carried captive. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. Common fate of those who fight against Zion. It happened to Egypt in Moses' day. It happened to the Assyrians when the Babylonians came. It happened to the Babylonians when the Persians came. It happened to the Persians when the Greeks came. It happened to the Greeks when the Romans came. It's just on and on and on and will continue to happen until the stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolls forth to fill the earth with hope and with healing, with meaning, and knocks down every other kingdom that stood in its way. There's something incredibly beautiful about the, the echoes that he's describing here. Isaiah being echoed by Jeremiah and all of them being echoed by prophets of the latter days. We get to live in this day of gathering, and a day in which spiritual Babylon will ultimately be defeated. I just want to be on the winning side. In verse 19 and 20, I will bring Israel again to his habitation. Welcome home. He shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. Those are northern. That's the lost tribes. They're found again. 
In those days, last days, in that time, last time. I mean, think about how often that those phrases are used. Jeremiah has his, is putting his eggs in the restorations basket because, because the basket cracked in his own day. He's putting his hope in the future, our day. And in this day, God says this, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found. Wait, what? You can't even find our sins anymore? How's that possible? They've always been so brutally visible. Well, here's why. For I will pardon them whom I reserve. You've repented. And I've forgiven you. And I, the Lord, remember them no more. Those are Easter eggs that I can't find. <laughs> There's, wait, did I hide them? Were there Easter eggs? I don't even remember. Uh, and you're like, yeah, they were really nasty, rotten ones. You could probably find them just by sense of smell. Oh, no, no, I plug my nose against those things. I remember them no more. Scarlet scent? Nope, I only see white snow out there. I, that's an amazing promise. I love the way Jeremiah describes it. I mean, you could look for sin. And sadly, we're the ones that are probably going to be looking for it. Like, no, God, I can't, you can't let me into the celestial kingdom. I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy. Think about all the things that I've done. And he's going to look at you with the most quizzical, furrowed brow. Like, what are you talking about? <sighs> Seriously, you're going to make me relive the whole thing? Remember when the time that I... And people all around us are like shocked and horrified. Like, wait, did they really? And the Lord looks around at them and goes, I, I, I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'm omniscient and I don't remember any of that stuff. And who are the people going to believe? Us or God? Here we are trying to force recollection onto the kindest act of amnesia imaginable. And the Lord says, nope, you're going to look for sin. There isn't any. I've washed it all away. Just accept my forgiveness and be grateful. Well, Jeremiah goes on. And in this chapter, he kind of bounces back and forth between the destruction of Babylon and the gathering of Israel. Like, which side do you want to be on? Wicked world or righteous remnant? He then says in verse 23 and 24, How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How is Babylon become a desolation among the nations? Well, here's how. I have laid a snare for thee, and thou art also taken, O Babylon. You got trapped by your own snares. And thou wast not aware. Thou hast found and also caught because thou hast striven against the Lord. Amazing that the seemingly invincible have been so quickly vanquished. All because you put your trust in the arm of flesh. If you remember what we saw about Assyria being described as an axe that's boasting itself against the one who's actually swinging it, or a saw that thinks it's all about the saw rather than the, the person that's sawing, same thing, just different metaphor. Babylon, if Assyria is the saw and the axe, then Babylon is the hammer. And you thought you were Thor himself. Oh no, that hammer has been destroyed, broken. Babylon will be no more. Verse 28, the voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Oh yes, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will repay. And what is he... What is he frustrated about? You, you destroyed my temple and you destroyed my people. But I will restore both. That day will come. 
At least it will if people will simply escape out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon. Be clean. Ye the be- bear the vessels of the Lord. That's the return. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. That's Cyrus the Great. That's what we... It's amazing that that's what we're studying, but also what we're living as we try to escape, overcome the world, just like President Nelson just said. Verse 33 and 34 then, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together. Family affliction. And all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. But, notice the next line, Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. Yes, Babylon is strong, but our Redeemer is stronger. Yes, the world seems so powerful, but the Lord is all-powerful. And ultimately, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hit it, Handel. There's something beautiful about recognizing Christ as our deliverer, our redeemer, our advocate. He will thoroughly plead our cause. He'll free us and lead us back to the promised land. And then verse 40 and 41, As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. And that's exactly what would happen when the Persian Empire comes down from the north to conquer Babylon. So Babylon, beware. Jeremiah will continue. The sequel to chapter 50 is 51, and it's more woes on Babylon. Will you listen, or do you need some more calls to repent? You need your own Jeremiah. Well, verse 1 and 2, it will continue. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that raise up against me a destroying wind and will send unto Babylon fanners that shall fan her and shall empty her land. For in the day of trouble, they shall be against her round about. Now, when we think of fanners, we picture somebody that's just really hot and you're just trying to cool them off. That's not the case here. It's a destroying wind, and it's fanners that will empty the land of the Babylonians. And what he's describing here is is threshing and winnowing wheat. What's happening, again, you have a threshing floor, and you thresh it, you beat it down so that the wheat and the chaff are separated. Out in the field, we separated wheat and tares. Now on the threshing floor, we got to get finer stuff, and so let's separate wheat and chaff. So we'll break it apart with the threshing, and then we'll winnow it, which is like taking a rake and then like throwing it up in the, in the air, So because it's different weights. The kernel, the grain is heavier. It's more substantial. It's what you want to hold on to, right? There's the weight of glory, and it comes back down to the ground. Whereas the chaff is just light and airy. There's no substance to it. It's nothing. It's the great and spacious building floating in the air. It's a dream. It's a, it's a fog. It's a mist of darkness. And the wind will blow it away. Well, if it's a windy day, that is. And if it isn't, what do you do? Because then you just throw it in the air and all it just kind of comes back down. Well, then get some fanners. Make wind of your own. And you'll have these other farmhands that are trying to make the wind blow, making the air and blow and fanning things so that when someone else winnows, it does eliminate the chaff. 
will Babylon prepare for the, the winnowing and there won't be anything left of you? In verse 5 and 6, For Israel hath not been forsaken, although they felt like it sometimes, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. I kept on trying. I kept sending prophets. I kept on forgiving. But how about you in Babylon? Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Despite all of Israel's sins, God didn't forget the covenant. He's going to preserve his righteous remnant. Even if they're trapped in Egypt, come out. Even if they're stuck in Babylon, come home. Because Egypt has no future. Babylon has no future. Zion? Now there's a future worth holding on to. He then says in verse 7, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. They're crazy. They're, they're plastered. They can't even see straight. They can't walk the line. They can't stay on the covenant path because of this drunkenness, this cup in the hand. I wonder if John is using this kind of imagery in the book of Revelation when he talks about this cup in the hands of the scarlet whore, this prostitute that is holding the wine of the fornication she's committed with all the kings and princes of the earth. There's Babylon personified in rather graphic and disgusting ways. Are we going to come out of it? Are we going to flee Babylon and come to Zion? In verse 13, O thou that dwellest among many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come, and the measure of thy covetousness. That well describes the downfall of Babylon also. You who have been so abundant in your treasures. There's the merchant city, the mighty merchant city, and it comes crashing down too. Verse 26, And they shall not take of thee a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, but thou shalt be desolate forever, saith the Lord. You see the interesting thing about that promise? They're not even going to use your stones in their own building projects. You see, back in the day, you took a stonemason with a lot of work to take just rock and then carve it, chip it down, hew it into actual stones that could be stacked together and build something. It's a ton of effort. And so typically what would happen is you'd reuse, I mean, it was the ultimate reduce, reuse, recycle, okay? That uh, reduced the work that you had to do by reusing and recycling stones. And if one uh, city or, or building was destroyed, demolished, well, the stones survive. You take one of those and look at how nice and square it all is. I can use that as my foundation and build upon it. I can use it as a cornerstone and build out from there. I actually remember years ago, uh, a colleague at BYU went on a, an interesting research trip. He went to Nauvoo and was looking for Nauvoo temple stones. I mean, the Nauvoo temple, it was beautifully built, but it was destroyed. Where'd all the stones go? And he found so many of them in the strangest of places. It was amazing to hear, to hear about this trip. And it would, be, uh, it would be the threshold of old kind of pioneer era homes. Uh, it would be the steps up to a house built in the 1850s. Uh, I mean, really, really interesting, where you could just tell by the kind of stone it was and the way it was carved and shaped. It was, I mean, we're not talking like sunstones and things like that. That's in the Smithsonian. But 
just rocks, well, stones that they used to build the temple. Of course they're, they're worth reusing. Well, not Babylonian ones. That's the amazing thing about verse 26. You're going to be so demolished that you're not even reusable. No one can turn back and build upon that flawed foundation. Verse 33, he then says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest shall come. I told you about winnowing. Well, now let's make it even more obvious. You're a threshing floor. And it's there in the wicked world that we start separating wheat from chaff, seeing what we're made of and which side we're gravitating toward. It's there that we will self-identify and distinguish ourselves as sheep or goats, wheat or tares, followers of God or followers of the adversary. Citizenship in Zion or Babylon, take your pick. It all comes clear on the threshing floor. And don't forget what we talked about earlier when King David chose a place for the temple his son Solomon would build. Where was it? At a threshing floor. The temple, the ultimate place of differentiation. Next, go to to verse 41. How is Shishak taken? We're talking about Babylonian cities now. And how is the praise of the whole earth surprised? How is Babylon becoming an astonishment among the nations? I mean, are you kidding me? They were invincible, and now they're invisible. How's that happen? Think about public opinion that is so in favor of something one day, and then totally turns on it the next. And the ultimate style one season is something that's mocked and looked down upon the next. Well, welcome to Babylon. Pretty good personification. Then in 45, my people go ye out of the midst of her and deliver ye every man his soul from the fierce anger of the Lord. So the Lord says over and over in Doctrine and Covenants section 133, which is the appendix, kind of the last lines he wants us to hold on to in this, in the scriptures of our dispensation. You've got to get out of Babylon, get out of the wicked world, overcome it. Because verse 49 and 50 As Babylon hath caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Oh, of all the earth? Now we're getting real Armageddon imagery. Ye that have escaped the sword, go away, stand not still. Remember the Lord afar off, and let Jerusalem come into your mind. That's beautiful. It's so easy to forget what home is like when you're far off in this far country. Ask the prodigal son. And those stuck in Babylon, just remember home. Let Jerusalem come into your mind. People that have wandered, saints who have strayed, think of your best moments in the kingdom of God. Think about happy home evenings. Think about answered prayers. Think about times of feeling the Spirit, of miracles participated in or received, sins forgiven. I think there's great power in letting Jerusalem come into our minds. Once that happens, the pull of home will draw me right out of Babylon. And I need to be drawn out. 
Because otherwise, verse 53, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify the height of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come unto her, saith the Lord. In a way, that's another one of those you can run but you can't hide kinds of verses. For Babylon, I don't care if you mount up to heaven, I'll find you there and bring you back down to earth. In some ways, it's also pride being reduced to humility. If you think about Babylon as one of the wonders of the ancient world, well, those hanging gardens will come crashing down. The walls of Babylon that were so mighty, you thought they would protect you from all invaders. When the Persians came, they just dammed a river or diverted it into another lake. And the water that went through underneath the walls of Babylon, they receded. The army of Persia came marching right underneath. This is the Battle of Helm's Deep, if you know your, uh, your hobbit, your Lord of the Rings, excuse me. Uh, same story, he stole it from, from the Persians. But the, there's no escaping. It's going to come. It will be, I mean, the way he says it next in verse 58, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gate shall be burned with fire, and the people shall labor in vain, and the folk in the fire, and they shall be weary. And I'm weary of warning you. I'm weary of having to tell you over and over in so many different ways, with so many different words and visual aids and object lessons, that a piper is awaiting payment. And we need to live the gospel we need to repent of our sins. We need to come unto Christ. We need to flee Babylon because ultimately Babylon won't be able to flee from itself and it will come crashing down. So why hold on to something so fleeting? By the end of this chapter, Jeremiah has recorded his woe against Babylon. It's all there written in a book, so hold on to it. He gives the book to one of the men of Judah that is being carried away captive to Babylon. It's like, you're going to need this more than me. I know, and I, I can always write a second copy, probably with some additional information. But you take all these woes of Babylon as Babylon is bringing you out, okay? Or back, back to them, and share it with the people there. Read it to the, the captives in exile. And then, verse 63 and 64, It shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. And they shall be weary, just like I am. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Oh, one last visual aid in this second to last chapter. Babylon will sink. And with it, my words of warning, that so long went unheeded. So yeah, take the book. Make sure they know what's in it. But then toss it into the deep. Because that those that wouldn't hear it in life, perhaps they might read it in death. Some stark realities here. We then only have one final chapter of Jeremiah. And in some ways, this is more... History than prophecy, this is more second kings than Jeremiah, actually. As we just get kind of the capstone, final story, the conclusion, this is what happened with the fall of Jerusalem. We already saw it talked about before, but here it's going to be spelled out one last time. And if you, we know our history, there were actually, like, like I said, three different waves of destruction. 
and three different waves of captives being brought back to, to Babylon in exile. The first one happened in 598 and 97 BC. But King Jehoiakim, the one of the penknife and the fire, uh, he was the king at the first. That's when, Jeru when Judah is conquered, but Jerusalem is spared. The elite citizens are deported. There goes Ezekiel, there goes Daniel and others. And the most valuable treasures of the temple are brought back as well. But for the most part, life in Jerusalem can continue. Uh, but fast forward a decade, and in 587 and 86, you have the second wave. This is now King Zedekiah. Uh, the siege of Jerusalem that we saw about that got so dicey, uh, paused during the Egyptian attack and then renewed when the Babylonians defeated Egypt. Zedekiah tries to escape. His son, he's captured. His sons are killed before his eyes, and then his eyes are put out, and he's chained and brought back to Babylon. That's the second wave. And along with another wave of elites, and exiles, it's like he's zeroing in on more and more, or I should say zeroing out, expanding. I got the good ones. Well, let me get the pretty good ones. And then who's that? Oh, just the poor, leave those behind. And then fast forward another half decade, and round three, 582 to 581 BC, Gedaliah has been assassinated, the governor. Everyone's kind of freaking out. Sure enough, the Babylonians are angry. We put a person on the, th on in that place for a reason. You didn't like him? Well, we don't like you. And so they initiate a third deportation. But what we see in Jeremiah 52 is the history of that second wave. It's really the most important of the three. It recounts Zedekiah's wickedness, his rebellion, and the siege of Jerusalem. Verse four through six cover 18 months in three short verses. It came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and built forts against it round about. So the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the famine was sore in the city, so that there was no bread for the people of the land. We saw a similar description earlier. To imagine what was going on in the hearts and minds, the... The, the absolute desperation that the people are feeling, knowing that there's death on the inside, there's death on the outside, and there's nowhere we can run, which is exactly what Jeremiah had been warning them about all along. Our only hope was to trust in God, follow his prophets, and, and move forward in faith. But the people didn't do it. And as a result, verse 7, then the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled the ones who should have been standing firm and fighting. No, they fled and went forth out of the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were by the city round about, and they went by the way of the plain. There's Zedekiah's escape, his attempt anyway, his capture, his son's execution, everything we've seen before. Again, in chapter 52, this final chapter of Jeremiah is just to remind us readers of all we've seen leading up. The Babylonian army then in verse 13 and 14, a detail we didn't see earlier, they burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. A couple of months ago when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about the walls and the temple as being the things that 
mattered most as far as the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And here we see them as the things that matter most in its destruction. The walls giving one a sense of security and a sense of identity, and the temple being, giving one a sense of purpose and meaning. And now the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, are left with neither of those. And with no identity and no purpose, what do we have left? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Savior would weep over that city while Jeremiah is weeping over it here. The temple furnishings are then listed among the spoils of war. And there's nothing left to remain there. This, the temple itself has been burned to the ground. And then he adds to the list that already contains bowls and spoons and candlesticks and all the other small implements. He then talks about major things that were removed from the temple as well. In verse 20, the two pillars, one sea, and twelve brazen bulls that were under the bases, which King Solomon had made in the house of the Lord. The brass of all these vessels was without weight. Yeah, not only without weight, it was without price. This was a priceless treasure. And not because of the brass or bronze it was made of, but rather this place of washing, this place of holiness, this place that we've based our baptisms for the dead, the baptismal font to gather Israel on the other side of the veil is based on the construction of that laver, that washing site. And it's no more either. Can you imagine how the saints felt when the Nauvoo Temple was destroyed? Imagine the devastation we would each feel if something were to happen to one of our temples. But the temple of Solomon is no more. And then verse 27 through 30, Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. This is the people whom Nebuchadrezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,000 Jews and three and 20. In the 18th year of Nebuchadrezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 830 and two persons. In the three and 20th year of Nebuchadrezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 740 and five persons. All the persons were 4,600. Ironically, those numbers don't seem like much. He just walked us through the three waves uh, of, of exile, of captivity that I described earlier. And he's given us a population, a head count in each one. And the three combined, 4,600? Oh, that's nothing. In many ways, you could say, okay, fine. It's not a majority of the people. The poor were left behind. And that usually is a, the larger population base. But in terms of the political or cultural elite, they're all gone. The ones that had the greatest potential to, to change things, to turn things around, they're all gone. And what's interesting to me is those are often the ones that are most prone to the pull of Babylon. They're the ones that Babylon seems to have its sight on, whether it's the the popular or the prominent, whether it's the, the well-educated, the wealthy, so often it's those that Babylon wants to try its hardest to pull away. And sadly, they seem to be succeeding in many instances. The book of Jeremiah then ends with a mention, one last mention, of King Jehoiakim, 
who had been living in captivity in Babylon for quite some time already. But here, the king of Babylon releases him from prison and treats him kindly for the rest of Jehoiakim's life. In verse 32 to 34, he spake kindly unto him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, all these other kind of puppet rulers or, or kings from conquered nations. He put Jehoiakim above them all and changed his prison garments and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon, every day a portion, until the day of his death, all the days of his life. It's a really interesting way to end the book of Jeremiah. It's almost like, hey, life in Babylon's not that bad. I mean, look at how they're treating King Jeho Je Jehoiakim. Yeah, speaking kindly, elevating him above others, changing the clothing there, come and eat our bread. Then again, doesn't that sound a little like what they're doing to Daniel and his three friends? We'll meet them in two weeks. Babylon has an interesting way of weaseling their way in to people's good graces. Babylon's amazing at ingratiating itself. To say, oh, no, 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 there's nothing wrong here. We're good, we're good. Come and be with us. In fact, if you think about the Assyrian game plan, remember, was to shuffle the deck or play 52-card pickup, just scatter everybody, move them around. Babylon's, and we'll see this more clearly in Daniel's case, let's Babylonify them. Let's drag them out of their land of inheritance and make them feel like there's something really amazing to inherit here. We'll convince them they're not, they're not in prison. We brought you out of that, though we'll never let you leave. We'll give you new clothing to strip you of your real royal robes. We will provide bread for you to eat. Every day a portion. It just won't be anything quite like the bread of life. Oh yes, my friends, Babylon doesn't want you to leave. So it does all that it can to convince you that there's no place quite like Babylon. Well, in reality, there's no place quite like Zion. And Jehoiakim has forgotten all about it. But Jeremiah hasn't. As we saw back with Ezra and Nehemiah, it took a lot of coaxing to get people to even come back to Jerusalem, which is tragic. It took some nudging to get them to rebuild the walls and, and, the, and the temple. And so many people were content to remain behind. Ah, it's been 70 years. We're good. Uh, life's pretty simple. Uh, it, in some ways, this is a better place to settle than the rocky soil of, of Judea. Yeah, I think I'll stick around. And unfortunately, some people who go on sabbatical from the church, for example, turn it into a an early retirement. And some people who ventured off into Babylon just on a working visa, for example, or maybe just to go there to school because, oh, the universities of Babylon are incredible. They end up taking what they've learned and turning them into, it's like what we saw before, plunder the riches of Egypt and turn it into a golden calf or into tabernacle implements. Babylon already took all those tabernacle implements. They're reversing the process. They're melting down the, the treasures of Zion to turn them into some kind of Babylonian bobble. It's a tragedy. And the worst part is that many of the Jews just stayed.
as do many of God's chosen children in our day. But not Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah never went to Babylon. He refused. I'm staying. And even if there seems to be nothing left, I have faith in a remnant that remains. And if I'm the last remaining remnant, then so be it. God will somehow have leaven to leaven the lump. He can multiply loaves and fishes. Trust him. Trust him with that. But it's there that we turn to Jeremiah's lamentations. And there are five chapters worth. Five different poems in some ways, if you want to call it that. The book of Lamentations is fascinating. It is, they are words of woe, but no longer words of warning, quite like the Jeremiad of Jeremiah was. Because it's too late, it's gone, they didn't listen. And Jerusalem, and worst of all, its temple has been destroyed. In Judaism, the book of Lamentation is read liturgically. Remember, liturgy is like the, the worship service. It's read on, there, there's a, a Jewish festival that isn't quite as famous as things like Passover and Tabernacles and, and Yom Kippur and things like that. It's called the Ninth of Av. And it's a day of public mourning for the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, as well as the destruction of the newer temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Uh, imagine, for example, in the United States, what a 9-11 memorial is like to commemorate the, the crashing down of the Twin Towers and in many ways the crashing down of a sense of security on our own soil. The Ninth of Av is that equivalent for in Judaism, and they read the Book of Lamentations. In some Christian churches, they read the Book of Lamentations as part of the litur liturgical calendar as well. And guess when they read it? They read it during Holy Week this lamentation over the death of Christ, uh, the death of him who lamented over the fall of Jerusalem that would someday come beyond him. This is, this is, this is an intense book. Uh, it's five distinct poems, one for each chapter. The first four are all acrostic poems. Remember we saw several of those in the book of uh, Psalms, when each Verse would start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet as a way of saying, we praise God from A to Z. Okay. Well, in this case, it's we are mourning and our sorrow encompasses the entire alphabet. There is an alpha and omega and in between them all, there's devastation and a sense of great, great loss. In fact, in chapter three, it's a triple acrostic a longer poem. There are short, just kind of punctuated verses, but every three form a stanza, and each of the three is the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as it begins in Aleph and goes all the way to Tav. Mourning all the way through. This, more than anything, is what establishes Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. And so may we join him in his tears if we understand his sense of loss, and if you've ever lost a loved one to the world, if you've ever lost yourself to evil influences, if you've ever felt like you've lost God and your grip on the gospel, the dark night of the soul, then welcome to the book of Lamentations, which begins with a single word. And in the Hebrew Bible, usually they would name the whole book after the first word uh, that's written in it. This word is how. And that's how the Jews refer to this book. 
We see it because of what it does, but I love the Jewish title because of that initial question. How is this even possible? How could a, a city that God loved so much have suffered this kind of destruction? How can I be going through these kinds of difficulties if you're in the depths of some moment of despair? So the book begins, How doth the city sit solitary? That was full of people. How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess above the provinces. How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. This is what the prodigal son must have felt at his absolute lowest point. This is what a widow must have felt with the death of her husband, of who can care for me now when I'm in no position to provide for myself. I'm solitary. I'm alone. I'm a widow. Remember what Isaiah had said. You're not divorced. Show me the bill of thy mother's divorcement. I haven't divorced you, but in this case, it feels like the God of Israel is a casualty of war. The city of Jerusalem certainly has been. And where do we go from here? Certainly not to your false gods and false prophets, false priests, in this case, false friends, your lovers. No, you come back to your husband. He's been your only hope all along. But now, is it too late? Can we ever return? In verse 6, from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. These rams or goats or deer or antelope that just leap away because there's nothing left for them here. They are gone without strength before the pursuer. It's prey fleeing before the predator. Imagine your favorite city. Whatever it might be, a city of joy, as we saw before. And imagine it being a ghost town and ruins and nothing left. The beauty of Zion is departed. Verse 12 and 13, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? How can you stand there? How can you walk past unfazed by what just happened here? Are you numb? Has it been, has been there too much devastation already, and now this is just like everything else you've seen? Whatever happened to comfort ye my people? There seems to be no possibility of comfort here. Behold, he says, see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above hath he sent fire into my bones. And this is not the kind of fire in the bones Jeremiah rejoiced over earlier. No, this is smoldering ruins and scorched hope. I know Isaiah said there would be beauty from ashes, but all I see around me is the ash. It prevaileth against them, he says. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. Have you ever felt like that? That there's no hope left? That you're utterly abandoned? That your, your life is in shambles? And where am I supposed to go? In verse 15, the Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. 
He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. Now this is brutally graphic imagery. We saw it in the robes of reminding red. We saw it in Revelation where the Lord is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But now it's gone from metaphor to reality. And what were those grapes that have, had swelled with sin? Here, it's the daughter of Judah. She has been trampled in the winepress. It's the Babylonians that have crushed her underfoot. This is, this is intense. It flips the imagery of Christ from trotter of the winepress to the trodden within it, since Christ it is who lowers himself to take our place within. He is crushed beneath the weight of our sins until blood comes from every pore. He is the one being trampled in the winepress. No wonder he cries over Jerusalem, the city that he loved. No wonder he weeps over our sorrows. No wonder his condescension is so filled with compassion because there's a fellow sufferer involved. In verse 16 and 17, he says, For these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversary should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. More graphic imagery. You see, it's one thing to be a woman in travail. And the suffering that Jeremiah describes earlier, using that as a metaphor... But now she is described as a menstruous woman. And to think about a woman on her menstrual cycle shedding blood, but not so that life can come forth, but rather as evidence that instead of life there is death. To think about... I just think of my wife wanting to be pregnant, wanting to be a mother, wanting to give birth. And for her, every menstrual cycle was painful evidence that that blessing was not yet hers. And to think of Jeremiah taking on that kind of sorrow and using that kind of symbol, that this pain marks the absence of life. In fact, this suffering almost mocks the possibility of life. Will, will things ever, will we ever have hope again? Will we ever have children? You remember that was Isaiah's concern, that I have lost all that matters to me. And it will only be in a much future day that we can rejoice and wonder who hath begotten me these. Here Jeremiah is still in the lamentation phase. And there doesn't seem to be hope ahead quite yet. In verse 18 and 19, he still says this, though. The Lord is righteous. I'll hold to that testimony. We are the ones that have done wrong. He says, I have rebelled against his commandment. 
He's admitting we're getting what we deserve. This is a my transgressions are mine kind of moment. So here he says, I pray you all people, behold my sorrow. Even if you aren't sorrowing over your sins, how can you not sorrow over the destruction that those sins have brought upon us? Behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. There went my kids. I've lost them. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. They abandoned God and then abandoned us. And no wonder we were abandoned by the false gods that were never around to help us to begin with. Where do we go from here? In verse 20, Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. Mine heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. Inside, outside, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to look but up to a Lord who is lamenting right alongside us. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, here's more of that sorrow, and you'll sense the Lord joining in with us. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. This is righteous indignation, though the language described in those two verses sounds a lot more intense than that. Words like anger and wrath, no pity. Oh, there's always pity. There's always godly sorrow from God if we're not offering him godly sorrow and repenting. There is mourning here. And notice that as he says to us himself in Doctrine and Covenants 121, even after you've reproved betimes with sharpness, and this is definitely an instance of that, what does God always do? Same thing he asks us to. Gives, spreads forth, or sheds forth a greater outpouring of love. So we know he's not our enemy. This was redemption he was working on. So in verse 3, he hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. Now that should help us understand what's happening. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. Remember the right hand is usually that covenant hand, and God has promised to deliver us, to advocate for us, to redeem us. And so with that covenant, with that right hand, he is holding back the enemy until we force God himself to flee. And if we have abandoned him and forced him to then abandon us, who's left to protect us from the enemy? This is the little boy with the finger in the dike, just trying to hold back the wall of water that's going to crash down upon us. The last thing we should do is throw rocks at him, to to mock him, to deny that he's doing us any good. Because without those saving fingers, 
then sure enough, the dam will break. And what will come bearing down upon us? The consequences of our sin. Here comes Babylon. It was God that was holding them at bay up to this point. So as a result, verse 11, mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children and the sucklings swoon in the streets of the city. We've seen already several times the emphasis is on the, the children, the young, the newborn. What kind of future could they possibly hope for? I've lived my life, Jeremiah could say, but these young, these children, these sucklings, swooning in the streets. And to me, I sense it when I meet people whose children are struggling and there's this sense of, I have a testimony, I have faith, I know all will be well with me, but what about the rising generation? And our eyes are failing with tears. In verse 14, the, thy prophets, this is the false ones, they have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. They've been busy scratching your itching ears. They've been coming up with false explanations for the woes of society. That's the interesting thing about that verse. They see vain things. They see foolish things. And they don't discover, we would say uncover, thine iniquities. These kinds of actions and attitudes have led to these kinds of outcomes but we're not going to say that. No, we'll look for other factors, other reasons why there are such problems in our society. But no one will turn to the obvious and admit that we're not living worthy of the blessings of God. Jeremiah was one to push back against it. And he's still doing it here, though in a much more sorrowful way. In verse 15, all that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Are you kidding? God must be guilty of false advertising. This place is a ruin. Well, it's not that God was advertising falsely. It's that his people were behaving falsely. And this is what's left. These ruins stand as testament of broken covenant. So yes, there is no perfection of beauty. There is no more joy. All we're left with is the obvious outcome of our own sinfulness. Verse 18 and 19, Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thine hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. I think sometimes we need to ponder. I think that there's the power in, in lamentations that... I'll put it this way, like I said when we studied Ezra, that in my years of serving in disciplinary councils, occasionally I would meet someone who didn't know what godly sorrow felt like. And I would try to show them with the help of 
Second Corinthians, with the help of, of Alma the Younger, with the help of Paul, with the help of Ezra, this is what godly sorrow looks like. This is what people who truly come to understand the gravity of their sin and the, the damage it's done to themselves and to others and the price it, that it placed upon Christ himself. This is, this is what it looks like when people finally get it. Well, lamentations can be used for that as well. How ought we to feel? I'm not talking self-flagellation. I'm not trying to like work up some kind of emotion. No, when you fully come to understand the atonement of Jesus Christ, when you un- come to understand righteousness and wickedness, then in some ways these kinds of emotions will come naturally to you. And lamentations may simply be a place for you to find some fellow sufferers and fellow sorrowers, especially when it comes to the thought of thy thy young children. At what point will we become so sick of society's sins and so concerned about the the world our children will grow up in? The world we're leaving to them as an inheritance. Will we make necessary changes for their sake before it's too late? Chapter 3 then follows. And after two prayers, two psalms, two, two poems of lamentation, here is a prayer for deliverance. Uh, a plea to God to please come to our aid. The chapter heading even suggests something deeper. It says that Jeremiah, speaking for Judah laments the calamity, but trusts in the Lord and prays for deliverance. Did you catch that? Jeremiah speaking for Judah? These are Jeremiah's words, but they should be Judah's words. He is personifying his people and trying to give voice to what they ought to be feeling. It's one of the reasons I love the fact that these sentences are so short, so punctuated, almost like I can't get out a longer sentence between the cries and sobs of my heart. So please, and help, and turn to God, and, and he's just crying here, and crying out to God for divine help. He says in 1 through 4, again, so many fast verses, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Let me take another breath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Another breath. Surely against me as he turned, he turneth his hand against me all the day. Another breath. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. Can you picture what Jeremiah, and by association, what Judah needs to be feeling? Or what they can't help but feel? Has God become my enemy? How have I turned from light to darkness? What have I done to myself? The cry continues, verse 7 and 8. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Have you ever felt trapped like that? Trapped in a cell of your own construction. Do you ever fear that your prayers are going unheard and unanswered? And is there a sinking suspicion that it's all your fault? In verse 18 through 20, skip ahead to that. I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. 
remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Oh, sin has such a bitter aftertaste. That's the wormwood. That's the gall. And yet, maybe it's good that I can still taste it in the back of my mouth. Because if it still holds, if my soul holds it in remembrance, then I might stay humble. Rather than forgetting the devastating feeling of guilt and thinking, oh, it's all good. I can always repent. It's fine. Was it really that bad? And I end up going back like a dog to its vomit or a sow to its wallowing in the, in the mire. No, we need to remember that. But how do I cope with that taste? How do I cope with a guilty conscience? Look at verse 21 through 23. And these are some of the most magnificent verses you'll ever see in Scripture especially if you are in a phase of lamentation over things that you have done to offend God. Lamentations 3, 21 to 23. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. So this is what I bring to my memory when I need hope, and it always brings it. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Can you think of more comforting words than those? No wonder they brought Jeremiah such hope. Despite a dark night of the soul, what is he counting on? Joy cometh in the morning. Because what else comes in the morning? A new day. A fresh start. A chance to begin anew. The way he puts that, it is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. It could have been worse. The walls have come down. The temple's been destroyed. Captives carried off to Babylon. But there is a remnant that remains. We're still alive. And that beats the alternative. And it's only because of his mercies that we weren't completely consumed. And how could he still remain merciful? Because his compassions fail not. That's incredible. Come with passion, suffering. Because of Christ's atonement, he's paid a price so that, can, so that there is a, a, a foundation of compassion that never runs out. That's the price he paid. That's the investment he made in our salvation to the point that his compassions never run out. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I think too often we set New Year's resolutions on New Year's Day. And we can leave the year behind with all of its problems with all of its sins and all of its sorrows. And it's January 1st, but how long do New Year's resolutions last? And I think the worst part is thinking that we have to wait till the following January to begin again. Jeremiah says, no, don't wait. Every morning, 
his compassions are new. And I have felt that. As there are times where I just wish I could have a redo, a do-over. And he says, you can. How about today? Let's begin again with newness. I will bring the sun. It will bring its light. It will cast away your shadows. And last night's darkness can be forgotten. I, the Lord, will remember them no more. Just be patient in the process. You'll need more than one morning. No wonder he says in 24 through 26, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. What a beautiful combination of attributes. To hope and quietly wait. That to me is... When you combine faith and patience, that's hope. When you believe and you just keep trying. When you fall but you rise again. When you have a dark night but you know that His mercies are new in the morning. And then just patiently wait. Quietly wait. Confidently wait hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is where our hope comes from. In verse 31, he says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. That's the title page of the Book of Mormon all over again. For though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He's not punishing us out of anger just to vent his frustration. He's trying to correct us and gather us home. As Nephi understood so beautifully, this is 2 Nephi 26, 24, God doeth not anything save it be for the benefit of the world, for he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. That even includes the kind of difficulties the people of Jerusalem are going through in this very moment. He doesn't do anything unless it's for your benefit. Even chastisement, even the loss of the spirit, even the dark night of the soul, perhaps it's there simply to remind you that morning will come. And once we realize that, what should we do? Verse 40 and 41. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. It's one thing to pray and lift your hands to heaven, but is your heart there too? Remember, that's where God is trying to write this new covenant. Change the heart within us. Lift it to God. Let it be an inward worship, not some kind of outward work. In verse 48 through 50, Mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not, without any intermission, till the Lord look down and behold from heaven. Till then I'll keep crying. But once I know the Lord has seen and that he's aware of my sorrows, my sufferings, my sins, my broken heart, my contrite spirit, once he knows that, then there's no more need 
for tears. Remember the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. Because sorrow and mourning, suffering, death, sin, pain, it's a thing of the past. So dry your eyes. Verse 55 through 58. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. And Jeremiah would have some personal experience with that term. There, sinking ever deeper in the mire. But even from there, thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou sayest, fear not. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. And that's true. It's all true. He has heard. He has drawn near. He has pleaded for us and with us. And he has redeemed our lives. Lamentations chapter 3. Put it next to Psalm 22. And as the Lord says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here are some answers to that question. I haven't. I can't. My heart is ever with you. Chapter 4, there still remains lamentation, though. I know that there is mercy, compassion, new every morning, but I'm still waiting in the dark, and there's still suffering and sorrow. He says in verse 1 and 2, How is the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? I didn't think gold could rust. How is this possible? How could Jerusalem be brought to its knees? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold, how are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? From golden crowns to clay pots? How is it possible? But then again, maybe that's a good thing. Because what did we learn already from Jeremiah about clay pots? God is the potter who will rework them. Oh, and maybe even yet fashion, not just a pot of clay, but a crown of gold out of each of us. Israel had such incredible potential. Jerusalem, the eternal city, how had it fallen? Verse 13 through 15, For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. That's why. They have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. That's why. They cried unto them, Depart ye, it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wandered, they said among the heathen, they shall no more sojourn here. And that's tragic. Instead of the city attracting people by its righteousness, they're repelling people because of their iniquity. The language they use, depart ye, unclean, depart, depart, sound like a leper? Unclean, save yourselves, I'm contagious. Yeah, flee Babylon. In this case, flee a wicked Jerusalem. But then come to your senses and turn around and come back home. Be clean. Verse 17, as for us, our eyes are yet failed for our vain help. 
in our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save us. Why did we turn to Egypt? Why turn to Syria or Assyria? Why turn to Babylon? Why turn to anyone other than the Lord? Because our salvation, our hope, lies only in Him. Finally, verse 20, The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, Under His shadow we shall live among the heathen. Now that's a strange translation, hard to understand. The NIV is a little more clear. The Lord's anointed. So in that case, we're not talking Messiah. We're just talking about the king, whether that's Zedekiah, whether that's Gedaliah. But our very life breath was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. Oh, that makes more sense. Why were we thinking Zedekiah? That... That spineless weakling. Why did we follow him? Why did we think that Pharaoh would come to our aid when he's never cared about us? He's only cared about himself. What have we been doing? It's the wrong anointed that we've been focused on. And we should have been looking to the Messiah all along. Well, chapter 5 gives us one final chance to raise one final prayer to the Lord. And he prays in verses 1 through 3, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider, behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. And yet, if there are three groups of people we know you care for, it's orphans and fatherless and widows. That's us now. We've been reduced to that point. But we know you love the lowly. We know you descended below all things to still be there to bear us up. So please do so. In verse 15, the joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because now we realize what we've done and that we've done these things to ourselves. So verses 19 to 22, where we'll end this week's study. Here's our final prayer. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou us Unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. And then this haunting final line. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. And the book ends. Such a melancholy final note. Definitely in a minor key, even though it had so many major chords before it. Why end there? Jeremiah, as always, down to the final period, warning, calling us to repent, crying literally and metaphorically that we, that we might change. I wonder if he leaves us on this note of dissonance just so that we couldn't stay there. We, no, you can't stop. You can't end there. Exactly. Then turn. 
turn back to better times and better days and better covenant keeping. Turn, pray, pray to the Lord that he will turn you unto him because that's the way we turn. I love what he said in that previous sentence. If God will turn us, then we will be turned. Too often we're just oh, gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and willing ourselves into obedience. But that's all the outward stuff. That's the old covenant. No wonder he wants to give us a new one. No wonder he wants to write it in our hearts, engrave it in our fleshy tables, make it internal so that our attitudes prompt our actions so that we can go back and dance again instead of mourn. So that we, like any prodigal, can come to ourselves and have better thoughts of home and pick ourselves up from the dung heap or the pen of pigs, as was the case with the prodigal. If we can dust ourselves off and pick ourselves up and just start to come home. God will meet us more than halfway. Our loving Father, whose mercies are new every morning, whose compassions fail not, will come rushing out to us, robe and ring in hand, with fatted calf waiting. And unlike the parable of the prodigal son, in the realities of the redemption, our older brother, the one who has never left the father's side, the one that deserves all the remaining inheritance, it was his to begin with, will be running right alongside the father to meet us. I testify that the father and son want us to come home. And God so loved the world to, that he sent his son to make it possible. And the son so loved the world that he sacrificed his life to make it possible as well. I know that Jeremiah and Lamentations can leave us sorrowing. They can leave us weary, but it's a wearying world that we live in. I'm grateful for the hope that they extend in our direction as well. And I pray that with our faith, with our patience, with our hope, we can rely on the fact that as soon as tomorrow morning, all things can be made new.